Ever since our independence 73 years ago, the neighbor we've been obsessed with is Pakistan. This is not surprising, as until recently, we lived in the same damn house and we were the same damn people. With the history we have had and the violence of our separation, it is natural that India and Pakistan should think so much about each other. But in all this time, we haven't thought much about another neighbor, a country bigger than us, an economy more prosperous, a civilization just as old, a neighbor separated by just the Himalayas. In the geopolitics of our popular culture, the enemy is always Pakistan, never China. But China is the big brother of our neighborhood. And hey, they did actually beat us in a war. And we are embroiled in multiple disputes with them. Should we be worried? Welcome to The Seen and the Unseen, our weekly podcast on economics, politics, and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to The Seen and the Unseen. We can't understand the present without understanding the past. And given the recent bust-ups between China and India in the Galwan Valley, we do need to understand what is going on. Today's episode looks back at the history of the interactions between China and India. First, a bird's eye view that spans centuries and looks at the difference between our civilizational approaches. Then we zoom into British times, in which many of our current border disputes were born, as the British Empire grappled with China and the questions of how far they could go and how far they wanted to go. Then we zoom in further to our independence and the changed dynamics of the Cold War. We see why the 1962 war happened and how the aftermath unfolded. And then through the decades, we come to these present times when China asserts its strength as India struggles to define its place in the world. My guests today are Hamsani Hariharan and Shibani Mehta. Hamsani is the host of The States of Anarchy, a podcast on global affairs and foreign policy. She is a Yenching scholar at Peking University. She researches on Chinese politics and policy. She used to be a research associate at the Takshashila Institution and the assistant editor at Pragati at the time when I was the editor there. And our entire editorial team was basically the two of us. UNESCO recently certified us as the greatest two-person editorial team in world history. Shibani is a foreign affairs researcher and writer based in Bangalore. She contributes to Eye on China, a weekly bulletin offering news and analysis related to the Middle Kingdom. She is writing about China's engagement in the Indian subcontinent for a forthcoming Rutledge publication, along with Manoj Keval Ramani, who has been on the show a few times to talk about China. Those episodes will be linked from the show notes. Before I begin my conversation with Hamsini and Shibani, though, Let's take a quick commercial break. If you enjoy listening to The Scene and the Unseen, you can play a part in keeping the show alive. The Scene and the Unseen has been a labor of love for me. I've enjoyed putting together many stimulating conversations, expanding my brain and my universe, and hopefully yours as well. But while the work has been its own reward, I don't actually make much money off the show. Although The Scene and the Unseen has great numbers, advertisers haven't really woken up to the insane engagement level of podcasts. And I do many, many hours of deep research for each episode, Besides all the logistics of producing the show myself, scheduling guests, booking studios, paying technicians, the travel and so on. So well, I'm trying a new way of keeping this thing going and that involves you. My proposition for you is this, for every episode of The Seen and the Unseen that you enjoy, buy me a cup of coffee. 
or even a lavish lunch whatever you feel is worth you can do this by heading over to seenunseen.in/support and contributing an amount of your choice this is not a subscription the seen and the unseen will continue to be free on all podcast apps and at seenunseen.in this is just a gesture of appreciation help keep this thing going seenunseen.in/support Hamsini and Shivani, welcome to the scene and the unseen. Thanks, Amit. Thanks for having us, Amit. So you know, Hamsini, a uh, long time since we've actually uh, spoken. We were colleagues for the longest time. You've come on at least a couple of episodes of the scene and the unseen in the past. So how has life been treating you? It's been good, Amit. I was thinking about you know, I don't know if you know this, Shivani, but when we first started doing editorial meets, Anant and I had this tradition of. going to blossoms and then we'd go over to the starbucks across the street and sit there compare purchases and then sit down and talk about like what was going to go on with prakriti and when we first started this i think church street was at that point in time going through renovations so it was literally like you had to dodge and walk on some of these wooden planks that were on the street and at one point i remember amit turning and saying to me you know we should really go in a single file because if the both of us die then that's it for pragati we're completely done and yeah so it's been a long time since we've been holding the soul of pragati in our feet on church street amit but life has been good <laughs> Yeah I I I don't remember this wooden plank thing but it sounds like just a kind of morbid thing that I would say and I must here tell my listeners something that they probably heard before from me that Church Street is basically the best street in the world partly because you know there's Takshashila with that captive studio and all the wonderful people who work there uh, including you guys at one point in time and plus um, blossoms in the Starbucks and uh, you know I, I was recording with Ram Guha once in the Takshashila studio um when we were doing a gandhi episodes and at the end of that i said that you know uh, he he said okay where are you going what are you up to and i said that i'm now going to go to the best bookshop in the world which is uh, uh blossoms and he said best bookshop in the world you fool it's not even the best bookshop you're on church street uh <laughs> by which he met, there's another store called bookworm which is uh very nice where i went and found a second hand copy of my own book and i was like how good can this shop be uh, but to, um Clearly, it's great, Amit. I mean, if it has secondhand versions of your book. Yeah. So our listeners are now like, this is supposed to be an episode about India and China. Let's start talking about that. But I've, you know, before that, I want to get a sense of um, Hamsini, starting with you, how you got drawn to China. In the sense, your master's degree also has to do with China, and after that, you uh, went to China and you were actually a student there, and you know, you were studying in uh, Beijing, and uh, now, of course, you're uh, back in uh, Chennai. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, waiting for all of this to end. uh and be mourning the loss of uh, wechat so so tell me a little bit about how the journey has been what got you interested in say international relations to begin with and then china and what was sort of your experience uh, in china like while you were there okay so there are different versions to this story one is you know the one that my parents are most proud of is you know when i was 8 i said i wanted to be like kofi annan and they were like yes this girl is going to go into the civil services and um then i rebelled like every other person uh, in this country and i really didn't want to go into the civil services um i actually did my bachelor's in journalism and when i was doing my bachelor's i 
did one of my internships at a Tibetan newspaper based in Dharamshala. And my whole point was that I wanted to spend a summer in Dharamshala more than anything else. And um, that experience really changed me, I think. So, you know, while I now go to Beijing and everyone calls me sort of a China apologist to various degrees, I think my journey really started out with knowing nothing about China or Tibet, um, but staying there for a month or two and just really realizing sort of the boundaries of my knowledge about the world. And that's when I realized that I wanted to study more about international relations. And I did a master's in India uh, before I worked at the Takshishira Institution and Prakati. And even during my master's, China was sort of the thing that was always lurking at the back of my mind. I didn't have a specific region or a focus like a lot of other people did. But I realized that I enjoyed reading about China and very few people knew about it. So I wanted to dive more into it. Uh, I think when I was in Takshashila, even when I was working with you, I was doing these Mandarin classes on the side and learning more about the language. And uh, none of that was useful when I finally went to China because, you know, while I could uh, read and write uh, quite decently, I think my speaking was just horrible because I'd had no practice whatsoever. So I'm doing my second master's in China at uh, Peking University, which is a very good university. And I was having a wonderful time until the pandemic hit and I was sort of forced to come back home. So I am waiting out the pandemic um, until the international borders reopen and I can go back and finish my research. And Shivani, to turn to you, you've also been into international relations for the longest time and then you also got into China. Not that you've specialized in only that, but that's been one of the key areas on which you've been working and you were at Takshashila till recently as well. Tell me a bit about your journey. Why international relations? Because that's not the kind of thing young people get drawn to, right? So what happened? Um, for me, I also had aspirations like Hamsini to join the foreign services, and um, which is why I was studying history, economics, and political science um, as an undergraduate. And... Uh, International relations was this discipline that combined all of those interests for me. So immediately after I finished college, I went to do my master's and I went to Singapore. I would say my scholarly sort of journey with China is fairly recent. I've only started uh, working on China and related issues in the last year. But my introduction happened when I was doing my master's because Singapore has a lot of Chinese students, so I was introduced to it in the classroom where you have classmates from China talking about, you know, the Chinese uh, take on issues that were being discussed. Uh, but at the time, I was completely obsessed with international terrorism. That's what I wanted to study for the rest of my life and wanted to become like a war correspondent and things like that. So um, that's what I was doing. But on the side also, like, hanging out with people from China, listening to what they had to say about, you know, issues of international politics. And uh, yeah, so I've kind of wandered. And at Takshijila, I used to hang out with Hamsini and Manoj and just like chat with them to know more. It was nothing more than that. But yeah, in the last year, it's become a little more formal. I'm studying China's engagement in the Indian subcontinent, trying to look at the Indian point of view. What is the Indian perception of China and stuff? And I have a couple of broad questions I'd like, you know, both of you to sort of take on, which is, uh, you know, before we get to the subject at hand, which is 
Uh, one is that, you know, when we uh, start learning about a subject, and this is a process I've seen that um, happens to all of us and is especially interesting when one is young and getting into a subject, is that you shall, uh, for example, leave China and IR out of it for a while. Let's say, how do you frame the way that you look at the world? And uh, a lot of young people, when they find a theory that sort of contains a worldview and contains a frame through which they can decipher the world, they get enamored by it. And all they can see for a while is, uh, you know, that framework. So they're using that hammer to break every nail. Uh, for example, there's a joke about how if you're not a communist at 18, you don't have a heart. And if you're not a capitalist at 32, you don't have a brain. Something to that effect. <laughs> there are many uh, sort of versions of that. And it sort of strikes me that when you guys get into international relations, for example, there are all these different frames through which you look at the world. Or when you talk about China and China's engagement with the world, there are all these uh, different frames. And, you know, the moment you come across one theory that seems so good and your eyes just open and you're like, wow, this explains everything. Then how seductive is that and how uh, easy is it then to sort of, uh, you know, keep your mind open and just keep taking in influences from all sides and at what point like so have you guys sort of uh, you know been through this sort of uh, journey in uh, uh, you know learning about IR and learning about China uh, Hamsini yeah I mean I think for myself I've definitely gone through that I think um, even my podcast the concept of you know states of anarchy comes from the first time I heard about the concept of anarchy sitting in international relations it really sort of blew my mind um, and it hasn't stopped blowing my mind. But what I also learned very early on is I came across opposing viewpoints, particularly from people who thought that concepts of realism really discounted domestic processes, really discounted uh, behaviors of certain states, really discounted histories, uh, which were not Western histories. And so it was sort of good to go up against those and see how other people felt about these theories. But something that I say for myself, at least, is that learning about international relations helps me understand and make more sense of the world around me. And I think uh, that's something that's definitely true of um, international relations theory as well. Can you briefly elaborate on that? What do you mean learning about international relations makes you help sense of the world about that? Because that's what I say about economics. Now, if you start saying that about international relations, uh, it just gets very confusing for the listener. What am I supposed to study to make sense of the world? I, you know, economics, sure. I mean, we've always had this thing where I, I've seen you talk about like things like house school economics, at least when we were at Pragati. But for me, foreign policy theories really help you make sense of the world. Um, in the sense of they also consider that players are rational actors. They also consider decision-making. What's very interesting for me is that they consider the international system, for the large part, is amoral. And that has really helped me figure out debates in my own life. And I think sort of the existing conditions for international relations is something that I've sort of applied to my own worldview or uh, whether it's the way power works or the way networks work or um, just the lack of a hierarchical system in the world at large. I think those are just concepts that make me understand how everything ticks. That's that's fascinating. Uh, Shibani, what about you? What's your sort of learning through IR been like? Like, was there sort of a particular school of thought which was attractive to, to you to begin with? And also, how do you sort of 
um, uh, you know, a question, I guess you could ask a scholar in any field. How do you increase your knowledge? How do you figure out what to read? How do you organize whatever you're learning? I was definitely influenced by one school of thought when I first started studying international relations. And that was because the professor that was teaching us IR theory belonged to a particular school of thought. So for me to question a teacher was a very new concept. Uh, it was not something that we had been introduced to in the Indian education system, unfortunately. So I was like, whatever he's saying is like final, right? It can't be anything else. And uh, then in my second term, I encountered another professor who came from the completely like different school of thought. And I was as uh, enamored by him. Uh, and that's when I realized that I have to, you know, you have to figure it out for yourself. Initially, there was this urgency to be like, who am I? Where do I fit in? Uh, what is the label that I would put on myself? But right now, I'm allowing myself to learn about everything that there is, um, evolve my own thinking process, which is, I think, essential for anyone, even when it comes to economics. Um, same for IR, you have to give yourself some time. It's too soon for me to put myself in a box. Yeah, so right now I don't give myself any labels. And it also allows you to read a little more. You're more open to the other um, arguments. And you can be more objective, which is, I think, what we're all trying to do. Yeah, and, and you know, all these theoretical lenses are obviously sort of useful tools and useful guides to being able to think about the world and understands people's uh, actions in different ways. But as you go along, do you find they actually correspond with reality? For example, we can have all kinds of frames of about how, you know, foreign policy proceeds and how China relates to India and blah, blah, blah. And then things happen which don't fit into these frames. And you're like, hey, what's going on? What's happening? So, you know, and uh, Hamsani, you've actually sort of been in China and I heard you in the All Things Policy podcast the other day with Manoj where you made the very interesting observation that while China is a, a part of our lives here in India, right down to the phones we use and all of that, India was not at all a part of your uh, life in China, which I found fascinating and which also kind of indicates that, uh, you know, in all these frameworks, we'll talk about Indochina with a hyphen as if, you know, these are two characters equally uh, interested in uh, each other. But for a lot of Chinese, India is very far away, which is not quite the case for us here. Uh, can you kind of expand on these two um, sort of angles? Yeah. Also, as an IR scholar, Amit, I will object to you saying Indochina because uh, Indochina typically refers to Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos. Um, oh, right. So okay. Sino-Indian is uh, what they generally say. But I, I agree with your point. Um in the sense that it's very difficult to fathom how the world around us fits into um, these theories that were formed since the 1920s, right? And what I try to do, at least with my own understanding of the world, is to, I think in the back of my head, I will understand how, say, liberals look at something or constructivists look at something and then see if it plays out without prescribing that lens to it, you know, and say, this is what happened. It doesn't particularly matter what a school of thought thinks about it. But what matters is sort of the element that's at play, you know. If this is power, then 
what does that school of thought tell us about that element rather than about you know large scale sweeping statements about the world so when i was living in china for example there was a lot that we kept talking about um for example in us and india you talk a lot about sort of the china threat theory which is that um china's rise is threatening and it will destabilize the world order and so on and in china they talk about china's peaceful rise which is the idea that china will peacefully become a superpower and um you have criticisms of both theories on either end and um it's very interesting to see how that plays out and sort of live that reality there is always a little bit of dissonance however what i think for me helps is to use these labels to understand and put a name to what is happening around me but not fully ascribe to that label alone as my own world view if that makes sense that makes a lot of sense and it's about time before our listeners rebel and go away to actually talk about uh, india and china i was about to say indochina but yeah you've corrected me there uh, so to talk about sort of india and china and obviously you know before we come to the current time which is uh, deeply complicated and it's almost become a, a trend of uh, i mean there are actually two simultaneous trends going on nowadays in our discourse and one is to disregard history completely and just talk of the uh, current moment and the other trend is to make up a history and you know fit it to whatever ideology you happen to have but we will not fall into any of these traps before we can talk about what is now happening we have to get complete historical context and we will do it at different kinds of levels level 1 which i'd like you guys to talk about is sort of a centuries old view which is how has china traditionally uh, looked at itself and you know india as a political entity of course is recent but in general in the subcontinent uh, how have we uh, looked at ourselves what are the sort of different world views towards the rest of the world and and uh, uh, you know um, how has that impacted our relations over the centuries you know particularly when we talk about china and india we come across two different schools of thought right and the first in china is tianxia or you know all under the heavens and you know i know it's extremely cliche to now sort of begin talking with tianxia but you can't escape from it either and the concept of tianxia essentially is that you have you know heaven and underneath heaven the middle kingdom which is china and you know and then you have sort of layers outside it and first you have the middle kingdom itself then you have countries that have pledged their allegiance in a sense to the middle kingdom and outside that you have barbarians and this sort of world view is supposed to have informed the way the chinese approached the world and themselves for a very long time so there's um, even a very funny anecdote that the first time that um, a british envoy goes into the court of the chenlong emperor and says oh my king sends his regards um the emperor says who is your king there is only one king so they didn't really um recognize the sovereignty of anybody else and that's very interesting when you consider the westphalian system where we traditionally put ourselves where all states are equal yeah that that is something that i wanted to point out and in the indian subcontinent rather as you know there wasn't uh, per se in india then the approach was very different right it was a very pluralistic kind of approach where you recognize that there are many different uh, sort of sovereigns 
and and there are different ways of dealing with this but you certainly don't have this arrogance that you'll recognize no other king but yourself and obviously that's kind of dictated also by size you are a lot of chutku chutku little kingdoms uh, yeah uh, <laughs> that's a brilliant way to like talk about india sort of checkered history right like all these chutku chutku systems that exist often making alliances with each other ganging up on bigger uh, kingdoms uh, each of these kingdoms have their own Uh, civil services based they have their own tax structures um of course when you know when you look at like small kingdoms in rajasthan for example they could have all shared similar features but when you look at it on a macro scale these were very disparate kingdoms when india finally got independence we were 540 odd kingdoms that princely states that eventually acceded to form the indian union um and before the british came th- this could have easily been twice thrice that number and there's sort of um a tradition in indian strategic thought to go back to the arthashastra and kautilyan schools of thought that look at um how alliances and were formed and how they were often directed at enemies you know the concept of my enemy's enemy is my friend and so on but i would not say that you could prescribe this sort of strategic thought to all the countries in the subcontinent to all the countries in the subcontinent is an interesting way of putting it and and it's interesting that you know china despite this sort of sense of superiority were also in a sense a little bit insular in the sense that they didn't really have imperial ambitions of taking over the world certainly not when it came to uh, india for example where of course the himalayas are a, a natural uh, barrier and i believe before modern times there was only one conflict sometime in you know 600 ad or something a minor conflict but otherwise there was really nothing much no amit the uh, chinese history is filled with war if you look at like whether it's the song or the ming or the qin um it, it no i mean uh, towards india yeah, the, okay, yeah. towards india which is sino indian sino indian would be slightly different i think we have to raise a couple of points here there's this really excellent book that i'll refer to later as well called um from frontier policy to foreign policy and uh and the author matthew mosca points out that for the most part the qing empire which was ruling during the 17th and 18th and the 19th centuries didn't really um look at india as a whole in the sense you had indian traders at guangdong guangzhou the ports on the eastern uh, seaboard and those people were seen as different you had merchants from calcutta who were being seen as different you had people who were in tibet who were being seen as different and so for a very long time the chinese court had to contend with the fact that these were not localized tribes but rather one large kingdom and and which eventually came under british india and so on so that was something that was a real feature of chinese foreign policy at that point in time and it was difficult because of intelligence gathering because of the way that courts were structured the way information was relayed and so on but uh they didn't largely have any conflicts towards india there were always skirmishes along the border that could have been traced for example with the emperor uh, and um the kingdom in ladakh or across tibet and things like that so those were regular features of the border but they aren't really considered in chinese history 
And is it sort of fair to say that the one time where China begins to loom large in India's uh, sort of geopolitical considerations is really when the British Empire is, uh, you know, underway. So in the 19th century, you have the great game happening where you have sort of two imperialistic forces in the British and the Russians vying for influence in territory. And at that point, you know, the question uh, that the British face is, where do we draw the line? I mean, we're obviously not going beyond the Himalayas, but where do we draw the line? Do we keep Afghanistan as a buffer state between uh, uh, Russia and us? What role, most pertinently, does China play in this? And China is almost, you know, this insular force whose approach till then to the rest of the world is, you know, who the hell are you guys? You are either barbarians or uh, kindly come here uh, to pay tribute. But at this point, you know, they are not up against, uh, you know, India as it will be later or against a whole bunch of disparate nation states, but against the British uh, Empire. And this is when the first sort of disagreements about borders start to take shape. So Tell me a little bit about that period. Yeah, I think you raised a very important point, Amit, in that the British wanted a buffer zone. And a lot of this does go back to sort of this great game of the 1800s. And the British were particularly concerned when um, Russia conquered um, Tashkent and Samarkand, which are currently sort of Uzbekistan. And the British were really afraid that Russia would come all the way to the borders of India. And so they wanted... uh, not only a frontier, which at that point in time was Afghanistan and the Himalayas, but they wanted a border which was a line in that sense. Uh, There's often, whenever we talk about the border with China, a lot of scholars do point out that it's very difficult to parse through the Chinese sources on the Indian border because there's A, very little that's been written about, and B, it's very, very disparate, as I'd mentioned a couple of minutes ago. So I think, you know, when it comes to this, you have to go back to Ladakh at that point in time. And I'm sure you've spoken about this with um, other guests on your show whenever you're talking to Kashmir. But all of this history of um, even Jammu and Kashmir, right, at the end of the first Anglo-Sikh war, you have the Treaty of Amritsar that's signed. And then um, Gulab Singh uh, took over as sort of the Dogra Maharaja of Jammu and Kashmir. And so the Dogras um, are the people who start pushing the uh, frontiers of Jammu and Kashmir. They are the ones who subsume Ladakh, which was an independent kingdom for the most part of um, history. And it was independent the way Tibet was, the way Bhutan was, the way Nepal and Sikkim were. And so uh, Gulab Singh and uh, the Sikhs eventually also capture Gilgit Baltistan, which is now uh, part of POK and uh, the Hunza region and so on and so forth. But what happens here is that you have all of these British geographers and explorers and diplomats who go in during the 19th century and they start exploring the Himalayas. Right? The Royal Geographic Society is uh, an organization that's now looking at how explorers will see the world and look at unknown places and things like that. So I think this is the period when maps are finally starting to be drawn. And the first map that comes up is uh, something called the Ada Johnson line. And what essentially happens is um, William Johnson, who's a British surveyor, becomes Gulab Singh's governor for Ladakh. And he proposed a line that would go through Aksai Chin, which we know now as very infamous. And it goes all the way to the Kunlun range, which is a little further back. 
And the Johnson line was presented in London by a man called Sir John Ada, and that's why it's called the Ada-Johnson line. Um, this was proposed in 1865, but the Chinese never really recognized it. So the next line that comes up about 20 years later is that the British again um, are in talks with the Chinese and they propose another line. And this is called the McCartney-McDonald line. And it's very famous because McDonald is also the person who secured the 99-year lease for Hong Kong. And so he proposes a line that will put Aksai Chin directly under the Chinese rule. So these are two lines that are proposed um, much before the 1912 uh, similar agreement, which we can talk about. Yeah, uh, so they're proposed, but how do the Chinese react to that? Like, is this a unilateral thing that the British are proposing that these are the lines that they're declaring it? Is there pushback from the Chinese? What do the Chinese feel about all this? What's the sort of politics happening there? So the British present these lines. Um, so they get these surveyors to draw up these lines. They present it to the Chinese court. They present it to the Tibetans as well. Um, and you have various interpretations of how this was perceived. Um, the Chinese till date staunchly argue that they have never accepted any of these lines. And there is a certain amount of truth in that, in that even if there were conversations or discussions, you see uh, Chinese diplomats at that point in time or the Qing court just rejecting these uh, maps and the talks finally falling through. Right. And then in 1914, there's another sort of interesting border discussion that, you know, has resonance up to the current day, which is uh, supposedly a three-way agreement between India, China and Tibet, which leads to what we call the McMahon line. Tell me a little bit about that, because that's also interesting in the court dispute. There was uh, even a little funny to me for reasons I'll get into, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I know that, you know, we come up with the McMahon line in 1914, but What's important to remember is that we come up with the McMahon line after nine months of deliberations. So the By we, you mean the British. You're referring to we as a British. By we, I mean the British, the Chinese, and the Tibetans, right? So okay. all three of us hold deliberations for about nine months about where a border should be. And what's interesting is that they finally agreed on sort of an inner Tibet, um, which would be made up of regions of Amdo and Kham, and outer Tibet, which is sort of made up of adjoining areas within China, which would typically be in areas of Sichuan and Yunnan right now. And the British finally agreed that Tibet was sort of under the suzerainty of the Chinese. Um, but they also put down stipulations that the Chinese would not interfere with the running of Tibet or they would agree never to annex it and so on. So with the Chinese, the main deliberations were on what would be the boundary between inner Tibet and outer Tibet. And with the Tibetans, the British drew up the borders of Tibet. And this is what Indians now call the McMohan line, which is now disputed. So that is one part of it. Now, I think what is important to mention here is that the Chinese argument is that the Chinese representatives at this meeting were kept in the dark. They said that, you know, these British imperialists pressured the Tibetans into accepting a new border and that all of this was a conspiracy. And their biggest rejection of the line comes in because their negotiator, this man, man called uh, Chen Yifun, just initialed some pages of the agreement. He never really ratified it. And so that's why the Chinese argue that the McMohan line is not valid. 
and for all future diplomats kindly note the difference between initialing and ratifying do not make this mistake no it's a very interesting argument because it's like the chinese weren't too interested at that time in the border between tibet and british india and so you know the tibet and british india agree on a border and later china takes over tibet and suddenly the border between china and british india and then of course there are all these uh, disputes over you know i mean tawang is famously kind of part of that dispute let me turn to you uh, shibani now as we approach independence and we even reach independence and but before we sort of talk about uh, the post independence uh, uh, imperatives one sort of broader question i have is that you know when one thinks about all these kinds of border disputes and many of these disputes are over areas which are uninhabited like sichuan is the area of switzerland but it's not quite the most bustling place and these disputes are things that we are stuck with even though you know if you were to approach it with a tabula rasa it's quite possible that you know neither country would really dispute in the first place but it's a historical artifact it's been something that's fought over and then you know that kind of comes down over time and it almost becomes therefore a matter of sticking to the previous stance you've made not just personal ego but even national pride like there's a wonderful quote by jawaharlal nehru which i'll take this opportunity to read out which he said on september 4th 1959 i don't quote him much but here we go this seem pertinent quote now it is a question of fact whether this village or that village or this little strip of territory is on their side or on our side normally wherever there are relatively petty disputes well it does seem rather absurd for two great countries immediately to rush at each others throats to decide whether two miles of territory are on this side or on that side and especially two miles of territory in the high mountains where nobody lives but where national prestige and dignity is involved it is not the 2 miles of territory it is a nation's dignity and self respect that becomes involved and therefore this happens stop quote and of course we could argue that he could have been much crisper there but it's a speech and not a, a piece of uh, writing so you know in all this talk of this and that but it seems to me that you know in these areas that we are fighting about it's almost ironic that these countries and the leaders of these countries don't seem to care too much per se for these areas but these are historical disputes and because you disagree you kind of keep disagreeing like the, you know uh, sinath raghavan in his book war and peace in modern india in fact writes about how uh, Uh, you know nehru at first didn't really think that india had a legit claim to aksai chin his his whole game was that let's use it as a bargaining chip and, and all of that but you know by the time we get to chu and lai's famous uh, uh, sort of offer to india in 1960 which shibani will enlighten us about soon you know nehru has been convinced that no we should claim aksai chin and not let it go and some could say that you know all our future conflicts could have been uh, uh, avoided had we just been pragmatic about that so shivani what do you feel about all of this i think the quote that you read uh, from nehru is says a lot about his personality and the reason i bring in personality is because the way i understand international relations if you look at it as a board game while the moves that the players make are important it's also important to understand who's making the move and that's why the study of personalities the context in which certain decisions were taken and uh, what were the constraints that the leadership had are equally important while your scholarly sort of debate and discussion should be about the policy decision itself you can't overlook the circumstances in which they were made and um, so while we're talking about nehru um nehru comes to power much like when 
you know, Mao Zedong is also um, gaining prominence and you, we have People's Republic of China established when the Cold War is going on. So both of these people inherent an international system that's uh, based on um, great power politics between the US and the Soviet Union. And it's very easy to think that leaders would just adapt to the international system that they inherit and because they are restricted by it. But both of these people are similar in the way that they sort of assert themselves and challenge the system that they inherit. With Nehru, he knew that non-alignment was, you know, one of the key policy decisions that he made. Um, he was assertive, but in a more diplomatic way. When you compare it to Mao, um, Mao viewed it as, you know, the need to be military, like have more military power and be assertive in that sense. And that's why he also sort of inflamed the conflicts in Korea, in Vietnam, and what Hamsini was talking about along the Sino-Soviet border as well. So that's where they sort of contrast. Nehru was, you know, thinking about self-restraint and vigorous diplomacy, and uh, Mao's focus was on being military, you know, exercising military might. Going back to, like, history and ego of people, I think... When we talk about Nehru, you have to, at the end of the day, he wanted to be prime minister, like when he woke up the next day. So the decisions that were made were based on the political capital that he had. And um, if he could not convince the Indian public of a certain decision that he made, he would not go ahead with it, which is what happens later when uh, Chuan Lai uh, proposes the compromise. And um, I forget what your question is. How much of these disputes are sort of uh, just a historical artifact and then the individuals concerned, whether it's, uh, you know, Nehru in this case, get trapped by circumstances into fighting for something which both they don't necessarily care about themselves and are also not really of such strategic uh, significance in that sense. Like, you know, Srinath in his book talks about how Nehru's approach changed from, uh, you know, viewing Aksai Chin as a bargaining chip to something that no is inherently part of India. And as you correctly said, I will quote Nehru again, using the them and that formulation, where uh, Nehru at one point said, uh, in, quote, if I give them that, I shall no longer be prime minister of India. I will not do it. And by them, he means Chinese. And by that, he means Aksai Chin. So if I give the Chinese Aksai Chin, I shall no longer be prime minister. But that's something we'll come to later. I mean, the, the larger question I uh, sort of had is that um, how much of these almost like to me, at least from my layman's perspective, a lot of these disputes seems so tragic to me because it almost seems like that there is some historical dispute somewhere over reasons that no longer apply. And then you get trapped in a chain of events and eventually millions of people die. And it's just a natural way it flows out. Yeah, Hamsini? Sorry, I mean, I just wanted to add to what Shibani was saying. And I think it's important to remember that the Cold War was taking off. But it's also important to remember that both Nehru and Mao were at the heads of these new volatile states that were large and that everyone expected to fail, right? So you had these extremely large, poor, populous states that were formed. And neither of their borders were what they are today. 
at that point in time your borders were lines on a map they weren't even fortified with wires or anything and i think that's why it was important uh, india went through the experience of partition which nehru i think personally also experienced because of where his home was and so on and him having sort of the cultural identity of being a kashmiri pandit and i think therefore even if he didn't care personally about 2 kilometers of barren land it's about what that symbolized particularly when you have a belligerent pakistan on one side when you have pressures erupting when you still have the union not officially formed and i think on the other hand it's very important to remember that china was going through the exact same experience of consolidating all of its borders at that point in time tibet was still autonomous hong kong was under the british macau was under the portuguese um mongolia was still you know mongolia was still officially not a part of of the people's republic xinjiang was very disputed none of the borders that china had um in the 1940s were absolute and for china i think it also felt that it bordered the soviet union which was i think about 4300 kilometers of land and their relationship though was heavily influencing the communist party did turn sour at one point in time so that threat was present and the chinese were also afraid that india was sort of being forced by these imperialists because india also had an imperialist history to sort of do um what the us wanted and to do what the imperialists wanted so i don't think it's merely about having these small historical disputes that no one cared about i think if you go back to the 1940s this is everything because if you give up on this land then it's sort of you giving up on your idea of india which is 2 years old um and you don't have nationalisms like you do now you have a lot more at stake by giving up this 2 kilometers of land is what i think that's very insightful and uh, sort of a couple of thoughts uh, came to my mind while uh, you were going through that and one is that it's interesting that while you know both mao and nehru were in charge of relatively sort of new regimes or new nations as they were then they came to power very differently where uh, you know nehru kind of came through power through you know classic congress moderation statesmanship diplomacy and blah 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 and therefore those values also come into play when he's actually prime minister and similarly mao is the quintessential guerrilla warfare guy and um, you know to some extent that probably uh, influences him so just looking at uh, sort of it's not only that these individuals were uh, impacted by the way they came to power but given that these were the paths to power it was almost inevitable that the individuals who eventually emerged on top would be individuals like uh, uh, nehru and mao respectively the other thought that strikes me is that despite all the rhetoric about um, you know non alignment and we just want to live peacefully with everybody and all of that uh, the bottom line is that the indian union coming together after the british left could also be described as a profound act of imperialism because you have one central government sort of taking over these hundreds of princely uh, states uh, sometimes with 
you know, cunningly cajoling them and breaking promises later, as we uh, know happened, and sometimes with uh, uh, the threat of force and sometimes with uh, force itself. So to after that typical uh, scene and scene digression, we shall now get back to uh, Shivani and to take us through the 50s. Like obviously the whole uh, takeover of Tibet happens around 1950, but also take us through what is Nehru's approach to foreign policy? What is uh, Mao's approach to foreign policy? How do they look at each other? You know, where does Patel differ with Nehru, for example? And, uh, you know, what is Chu and Lai's role in all this? G- give me a sense of that background. So if you look at like, uh, there's a digital archive, uh, which has, you know, a lot of these conversations between the Indian leadership and the Chinese leadership uh, recorded that anyone can access. And if you look at the minutes of Chairman uh, Mao's and first meeting with Nehru, which happens in October 1954, um, they're talking about Sino-Indian relations. They're talking about the political situation in Asia. Both countries acknowledge that they have suffered from oppression and that going forward, both of them need to play an important role in Asia because they are the biggest nation states in the region. Um, There is an understanding that they will both pursue rapid development. They're both like agricultural societies that want to industrialize quickly and that this uh, you know, chase for development should not frighten the other so-called smaller states in Asia, which is why you have the five principles of peaceful coexistence or the punch shield, which, which was actually incidentally signed in the same year um, earlier that time. So there is an agreement um, in terms of what needs to be done in the region between the two, but there is also mistrust. Mao viewed Nehru as this Western-educated leader who could not be fully trusted because Mao felt that Nehru would lean towards uh, Western ideologies and, you know, would have a soft corner for the institutions that he himself uh, did not believe in and wanted to challenge. Um, On the other hand, there are are, um, declassified CIA files that say that Nehru had, was not sure of uh, Chu and Lai and his sort of intentions. And he's quoted saying that he has cheated me multiple times. So I, no matter how many times we have discussions on the border, I'm not sure I can believe him. So um, there is that mistrust that we talk about uh, between India and China even today that exists, you know, from the 50s. And how does sort of the Chinese takeover of uh, Tibet play into that when it happens in 1950? Like, uh, you know, Nehru is almost inclined, at, it seems, at that time to sort of not take an aggressive note and uh, give them the benefit of the doubt. While, uh, you know, Vallabhai Patel, you know, famously in a note to Nehru said that, uh, you know, this throws, quote, into the melting pot all frontier and commercial settlement, uh, stop quote, you know, I mean, he he kind of saw it, uh, he he described the northeastern frontier as one with, quote, uh, unlimited scope for infiltration, stop quote, and also added, and that might be true to the current day for good reason, that, quote, the people inhabiting those portions have no established loyalty to India, stop quote. But uh, leaving aside what 
Patel kind of feels about it. You know, what does this takeover of Tibet kind of shake the relationships and how do they then, uh, you know, those border disputes are still sort of being discussed. How does all of that proceed for the rest of that decade up to 1959 when, of course, it all blows up? Um, so I have a very brief point to make here and then Hamsini can take over. But um, with respect to Tibet, I think China felt that India was interfering within its sovereign territory and that was not acceptable, um, whereas India didn't view it that way. Yeah, I think what Shivani has pointed out is very important. You know, the way I think about the 1950s often is that, you know, we sort of celebrate it with, you know, the non-line movement and Panchil and everything that Shivani talked about. And there was this real sense of feeling that here are these two countries that are very similar and facing challenges and um, could possibly lead the third world, right? Uh, and something that I came across in some of my readings recently is statistical exchanges between India and China, for example. The Chinese rejected a lot of statistics um, as a discipline that took place and they said that there was a need for socialist statistics to come about um, and things like that. It's very, very fascinating. Arnab Ghosh has a book called um, Making It Count. And I had a podcast uh, episode with him recently. And he was talking about how during the 1950s, you even had some uh, Chinese statisticians come over and train with PC Mahalnobis. And PC Mahalnobis was invited by Joe and Lai to go to China and deliver lectures. And that was something that you didn't really see uh, it, during, at, particularly at that period of time, these exchanges that are happening very under the radar, that are very technical, but still count rather than these big picture things that we think of otherwise. Moving on to Tibet, and I think uh, Shibani raised again a very, very pertinent point, which is that the Chinese saw it as interference within their internal affairs, whereas the Indians perceived it differently. And the Indians perceived it differently because even the 13th Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama before the present one, had served out a period of his exile in India. And so there was a lot of exchanges that were happening between the Tibetans and the Indians. And um, Nehru had met uh, the 14th Dalai Lama in Beijing. And the 14th Dalai Lama, I think, had come down for Buddha Jayanti celebrations or something like that a year before he fled and so the takeover of Tibet was something that was seen as a natural part of Chinese history, and it still continued to be seen in that manner. But this was definitely sort of a pivotal point in the relationship, because China was convinced of India's role in aiding um, Tibetan rebels in that, you know, uh, there were covert uh, CIA operations that were happening in Sikkim. And all of this was part of the giant imperialist plot. And I think this also may have hardened the Chinese stance on the border. So, you know, let's kind of get to the subject which uh, Indians like to avoid, unless they are Indians who don't like Nehru, in which case they keep coming back to it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, leading up to sort of the 1962 war and before that, you have things kind of beginning to uh, fall apart in 1959. And 1959 seems to me in some ways to almost be uh, similar to modern times where 
you know there almost seems to be this naive expectation from the indian side that oh you know nothing really really happen at the border and it's cool and we are all chill and then suddenly there are these attacks and indian soldiers die and it's like what's going on and you know take me through sort of what are the issues there why do those skirmishes happen you know how are the indians looking at china at that point in time and the chinese as you guys mentioned obviously are suspicious because they are just worried that you know india will continue the imperialism of their predecessor colonial power so to say yeah um so i can get into what happened and i think before you dive into 1959 amit i think it's important to go to 1957 and what happens in 1957 is that um china constructs a highway from xinjiang to tibet um all the way to lhasa and this cuts across aksai chin and this really surprised the indians because they hadn't imagined that a project like this could have taken place at that point in time the highway was still sort of cobblestones right it's not a six way lane in which we imagine highways today but this was still a road through a boundary that the indians considered disputed and therefore this also steered the indian stance on uh, taking a harsher line to the border and so you have two clashes in 1959 one in uh, what we used to call the northeast frontier uh, region the uh, arunachal pradesh or nifa and uh, one in ladakh uh, which is still disputed and so what happens with the fallout of these two clashes is that china offered that both countries fall back by 20 kilometers in ladakh and they don't violate the mcmohan line uh, in the east so yeah talking about what hamsini said that you know um the conflict that um led to the 62 war started in the 50s and i would go even further back to say that it started in 1954 um this is when india published new maps that included aksai chin within the boundaries of india and when it discovered the highway um nehru sort of you know called up uh, cho and lai and said what's going on and um, cho sort of reassured him multiple times that you know th- there was an error and that the maps needed like revising um there wasn't actually any sort of crossing of the line so to say um and there were multiple conversations around this which also led to an increase in suspicion towards china that nehru felt this is also evident in the fact that in in how nehru sort of tackled china within his um office so um g parthasarthi who was the indian envoy to china at the time was asked to bypass the defense minister who was uh, mr menon at the time and uh, bring in all communications related to china directly to nehru um again nehru i would sort of call this you know fog in foreign policy um fog is actually a strategic studies term where you talk about the uncertainty on the battlefield in times of war but you also see it happening in foreign policy where the leadership is unsure about what the other side is doing there's information asymmetry and um, you're not sure who you can trust um the same way nehru was not sure that the defense minister could be trusted because of his leanings towards the left and he felt that he would be sympathetic to the chinese 
so he should be bypassed and that sort of brings us to what hamsini was saying where the you know highway was discovered and uh, in 1960 uh, chon lai proposed that india drop the claim to exaichin um and if india were to do that china would you know withdraw its claim from the northeast frontier agency um this was not a subtle move on the part of the chinese and um, you know chao consistently refused to accept the legitimacy of india's territorial claims so it was i think a very frustrating round of negotiations between india and china that i think um chao tried so many times that within 1960 he visited india four times and the meetings like if you read the transcripts they go on for hours so it 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 was an increasingly um frustrating process and neither side was willing to sort of back down on its claim um in hindsight a lot of people argue that nehru should have taken the deal and all future conflict could have been avoided 1962 could have definitely been avoided um but i would say like in my understanding of international relations there are no guarantees we cannot say that had india taken that deal or made that compromise at that time we would not be sitting here recording this podcast discussing the exact same things that we are today um so yeah i mean you will always be blamed for things that you didn't do um nehru did not have the political capital at the time to justify uh taking on the deal and like i said before if you are a leader you want to wake up and still be the leader of the country so uh, that is a big consideration for any decision that you make no and i'm very pleased at the implication that the recording of this uh, episode is not contingent on random historical uh, <laughs> events you know you were talking about um, i have a quote from uh, chowan lai where he visited india in april 1960 this was his april trip as you said he came a number of times that year uh, uh, where he says quote i have come here to seek a solution and not to repeat uh, arguments stop quote so you get a sense of what is going on through his head and earlier one of you mentioned that nehru didn't like him because he was like, like this guy is always cheating me so this is sort of the mutual uh, distrust that is going on and also at, at at this time sort of what the indians um do is like they have a strategy which is called i think the forward strategy or the forward policy where uh, you know uh, the, the the approach is that whatever is uh, disputed uh, territory you don't cross that but you set up indian outposts um, over there aggressively so that the chinese don't come over and uh, india apparently did that in i think up to 60 if i remember correctly 60 outposts of this sort and the chinese viewed it as almost an act of war it's like you know they are creeping closer and closer and all these areas on either side of whatever those de facto borders are were sort of unoccupied and why are they setting up so many posts and that was kind of what um sparked the whole thing off and what sort of interests me and and this is also sort of a subject that is pertinent today and is going to be wherever there is politics this will be pertinent is the incentives of politicians whereas you know we earlier discussed on nehru said that look i want to wake up tomorrow morning as prime minister and it is you know not going to be possible if i give away aksai chin although and there are stories about how you know within the congress he was under pressure to do something and to uh, ramp up the uh, sort of the aggression how much in your view is does politics drive all of this and to me it's you know when i look at the incentives of politicians it's very sort of 
much easier to understand what the incentives of politicians in India are, like Nehru then or Modi today, that you cannot be seen to back down beyond the point, which is possibly, you know, why Chu and Lai could have understood that and framed the whole thing differently so that Nehru could have had a face-saving way out and we would still be recording this episode, but he could have had a face-saving way out. But I'm sort of a little baffled by what are the incentives on the Chinese side? Like what are Chu's incentives? What are Mao's incentives? Uh, you know, and today, and a question we'll come to much later also uh, in the episode is what are Xi's incentives today, for example? What were whose incentives in the early 2000s where he was, uh, you know, far friendlier? So can you guys shed some light on that? What constituencies are they playing to and what is driving them? Um, so I think there's it's, it's very important to look at China in the 1960s, right? Um this is right after Mao started his Great Leap Forward. Steel is being melted around the country so that it can be poured into industries. And that's what's happening domestically. But this is also the time when there's something called the Ita incident that happens in Xinjiang, where about 60,000 Kazakhs suddenly flee from Xinjiang. And so the Chinese realize that they really need to start putting up definite boundaries. So the 1960s are a period when China had boundary issues with countries all over, right? But it managed to, at this period of time, 1960 to 1963, 65, um, settle its boundaries with Pakistan, settle its boundaries with Myanmar. And that's very interesting for me, because when you look at why would China resolve its boundaries with Pakistan and Myanmar, but not with India? And um, there's this book by M. Taylor Francis called Strong Border Secure Nation. And it's really um, fascinating because what it suggests is that rather than simplifying it as whenever China has been in internal strife, it seeks to be more aggressive on the outside, is something that we hear even today. You know, China is going through this COVID pandemic, needs to deflect, and therefore it's being more aggressive. But I think what the book argues and what I think makes a lot of sense is that whenever China has faced internal crises, whether it is Tibet or Taiwan or Xinjiang, it's been more open to compromise and cooperation. Whereas if it's had external threats or crises, it's been more prone to aggression. So how this would play out in the India-Pakistan um, scenario, for example, is that China was going through the crises in Tibet. It was going through a crisis in Xinjiang um, and, of course, facing off with Taiwan, And apart from the Great Leap Forward, which is ongoing. So it, this is a period of internal strife. And therefore, they did not want to have to deal with border walls. With the Pakistan border, for example, Pakistan was supposed to have reached out to China during this period of time in the 1960s, and the Chinese didn't get back to them. But as soon as the month-long border happens with India, they immediately resolve their border differences with Pakistan and with Myanmar. Um, and that's what's interesting for me, because it's not internal crises that's led them to resolve those boundaries. It's sort of the aggression with India. 
so you can ask, hey, then why did we fight the boundary war with China? Why didn't Pakistan or Myanmar fight it? And the answer there could be in the forward policy that you'd mentioned, Amit. It could be that Mao um, had perceived this policy as external aggression coupled with whatever was happening in Tibet and therefore construing all of this as sort of expansionism that needed to be taught a lesson. That's a quote that's often come, right? India needs to be taught a lesson is something that Mao uh, uh, supposedly said. And um, that's seen very clearly in what happened in terms of uh, politics between uh, Mao and Nehru. Just to add a bit of trivia for politics between Mao and Nehru. I read that Mao actually told Nehru that he would like to discuss with him war as a policy instrument and what were Nehru's thought, uh, thoughts on it if, if war became the instrument of statecraft. And this is happening in the backdrop of Tibet and India and China discussing how they need to be uh, you know, uh, re- responsible uh, Asian powers. So, yeah, that was an interesting bit of detail I wanted to add. I think the other important thing, and this is something that Bertil Lindner says, um, is that it could have sort of been a strategy, whereas, um, you know, for example, Mao had his disdain for Nehru um, and uh, th- this idea of teaching India a lesson, whereas Zhou Enlai was entrusted with keeping India guessing about China's actual intentions, you know. And uh, I think what scholars have said at various points with Joe is that he genuinely attempted to, you know, impress on Nehru that India should meet China halfway. And what's evident with the other countries is that they sort of signaled a willingness to meet China halfway. And with the Pakistan border, if you look at it, China actually granted them some extra territory and took very little in return. Uh, And so that was sort of taken as an example of China's benevolence. You know, in, in look at how we deal with our smaller neighbors. Most of these deals are made at our own cost. Whereas their cost was just that they wanted these borders to be sealed and to not have any loopholes with them. So this could have also been sort of another factor that was dealing in the politics between our people. No, and I want to get a wisecrack out of the way before I get <laughs> on to my observations, which is when, uh, you know, when Mao said we want to teach India a lesson, maybe he recognized how broken our education system is <laughs> and it still is today. So perhaps Nehru should have let him. But the irony of all this is that if you look at uh, you know, how the alignments are happening, despite all our claims of being not aligned and all that. If you look at all the alignments, the Chinese in the 50s actually looked at Pakistan with a little bit of suspicion because, hey, Pakistan is aligning with the US. And it made complete sense for the Soviets, China and India to kind of uh, form a block. And in fact, you know, when the 59 skirmishes happen and all that, and the Soviets make a statement in favor of India, it, uh, initially, you know, it's a little bit awkward. And then, you know, Khrushchev and Mao meet and they have some interesting dialogues. And then the, the moment that Mao really chooses to step up Chinese aggression in 62 is when he knows that, hey, US and Soviets are going to be busy because a Cuban crisis is happening. So he's like, okay, they are busy here. Let us bully this uh, uh, kid in uh, our um, 
in sort of our neighborhood. And the other thing that also strikes me is that something that Mao actually articulated and uh, which would not have been a mystery at the time is that China, as far as it came to, uh, you know, South Asia was not interested in taking territory, as we see even after the 62 war got over and in the offers of Zhu and all. It's not like they wanted to conquer anyone. So, you know, what you just said in the context of Pakistan, at the moment Pakistan agreed to a deal, uh, they actually gave them a little bit of territory, makes sense. Even, uh, you know, during the 62 war, their strategy was, okay, we just drive the Indians out and we get back to whatever the de facto line of control was and then we call a ceasefire and we withdraw and that was the whole game. So at some levels, you know, to get into that conflict sort of uh, end up kind of losing and everything that happened uh, seems to me to, uh, you know, constitute a series of self-goals. And I am so traumatized by the thought that I need a break and I will share it with both of you and all our listeners. Are you one of those people who loves to be surrounded by beauty? Let's say you like contemporary fine art, you want more of it in your life, but you don't have the time to visit galleries and buying art to hang on your walls can be expensive. Well, there is a way out. Head on over to IndianColors.com. Indian Colors licenses works of art from some of the finest modern Indian artists and adapts them into objects of everyday use like dresses, shirts, tote bags, pouches, home decor items and much more. This makes art accessible to many more people and artists get royalties on every item you buy. Indian Colors now has a new range of products out there. Elegant summer dresses and men's evening shirts with unique motifs by artists like Tanmay Samanta, Manisha Gera Baswani, Shruti Nelson, Pradeep Mishra, Harain Bakil and Jaideep Mehrotra. Why should you not look classy even if you are stuck at home during the lockdown? There's also a new range of those iconic Indian color stoles as well as home decor accessories like tissue paper holders, cushion covers, coasters and more. And if you're missing your friends in these lockdown days, worry not. You can show them you're thinking of them by buying gifts for them from Indian Colors. Corporate gifting is also available. So head on over to IndianColors.com. That's colors with an OU. And make art a part of your life. Welcome back to The Scene and the Unseen. I'm chatting with Hamsini Hariharan and Shibani Mehta on what I realize, much to my embarrassment, is not Indo-China conflicts, because that would involve Cambodia, but Sino-Indian conflicts. Is that right, Hamsini? Yes, Ahmed, that's completely right. (laughs) Yeah, so we are uh, talking about uh, Sino-Indian conflicts, and uh, we just finished chatting before the break about the 1962 war, you know, which we basically ended up losing, but the Chinese philosophy was not really to... you know, a colonial one of conquer territory and let us march to Delhi and all of that. But, uh, uh, you know, they kind of proved their point, um, established uh, sort of the lines of control that they wanted, and they headed back. Now, what's the deal with the aftermath of the war? Like one thing which in an Indian context, everyone knows is that, of course, V.K. Krishnamenon, the defense minister, was kind of disgraced and he had to quit and all of that uh, uh, happened. Uh, which is, I think, what is known in the Indian popular imagination. But give me a deeper sense of what is the aftermath between both countries? What are you mentioned that there were schools of thought on it? Tell me a little bit about that because I find that fascinating. Sure. I think um, whenever you're looking at the 1962 war, I, I didn't really want to get into sort of the specific of the war itself because I'm not someone who served in the military and therefore uh, I would not, be the best person to speak about it. But I think whenever you talk about the 1962 war, some clear strands really stick out at you, right? And the first is that um, why did the Chinese 
withdraw in a month? Why didn't they march down to Delhi or why didn't they march down to Assam? And that is something that really came about. The second was this question that how could they, you know, construct a highway in 1959 that we spoke about earlier? How could they rise to such commanding heights across this border? And we didn't even have a clue. Um, So that intelligence failure was something that was repeatedly brought up. And the third was something that military historians still talk about, which is why was offensive air power not used? You know, we had the Indian Air Force, which was possibly one of the best air forces at that time. We had bases, we had aircrafts. So why didn't we use these? So these were major questions that came about. And I think... To be fair to the Indian establishment, they did take a lot of them into consideration. There was a clear effort by the Indian government to rehaul intelligence, for example. So this is when uh, it was after the 1962 war that uh, the RNAW, the research and analysis wing, was finally formed. So you had a lot of internal reforms that took place. Now, when you think about the war itself, right, the first question that I asked, which is, Why did China just withdraw after a month? This is possibly one of the shortest wars that have taken place. Is You can look at the Sino-Indian conflict through two major schools of thought. And both of them sort of come down to this report called the Henderson-Brooks-Bagat report. And the Henderson-Brooks-Bagat report is a report written by two Indian armed forces officers who were both serving at that point in time. And they'd written this report to sort of point out that the Indian army had intelligence that they believed that the forward policy that we'd spoken about was erroneous in a way. And they pointed out clear gaps in the political vision of the border and of the tensions. And so that clear misreading was picked up. And the reason that the Henderson-Brooks-Bagat report is important is because the report got leaked and it got into the hands of this Australian journalist called Neville Maxwell, who didn't publish the report then. He published parts of the report and then retracted it in 2014 on his website. So before then, the only thing we could do was sort of take his word for it. And what Maxwell essentially did was write a book called uh, India's China War, where he uh, wrote a book along with um, other voices like Alistair Lamb, who writes his own book. And what these authors essentially argue is that Nehru was wrong. There were all of these glaring gaps in India's foreign policy. Nehru misread the situation. He was high-handed. And it is clearly India's fault that they went ahead with the forward policy. And that's why the Chinese sort of struck back. And uh, there's even a very funny anecdote of um, Joe and Lai uh, and Mao are having sort of a state dinner uh, with, I think, the Pakistani head of state, uh, yeah, with Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. And Neville Maxwell is there. This is 1971. Um, and what um, Joe does is he stands up and he calls for a toast. And through his interpreter, he tells uh, Neville Maxwell, he says, Mr. Maxwell, uh, your book has done a service to truth and China has benefited from that um, stop quote. So this is something that was immediately rubbished by a lot of Indian analysts, by the Indian public. Uh, Neville Maxwell had sort of a notorious reputation for being this China hand, as did Alistair Lamb. And to be fair, they raised a lot of pertinent questions that a lot of scholars at that point in time were possibly not able to justify. 
Um, but I think it's also fair that a lot of criticisms have been leveled against them. In particular, there's a book that Bertel Lindner wrote recently called uh, China's India War, which is a play on Maxwell's book. And Indian authors and Lindner, um, they systematically refute a lot of the claims that Maxwell and Lamb raise. For example, if you remember in the first half of the podcast, we spoke about sort of this inner Tibet and outer Tibet, right? And um, the, and that was sort of the basis for the 1914 uh, McMohan line. Uh, Lamb also like points out that there was an inner line and an outer line in uh, the Nifa region in the Northeast. And he says, you know, the inner line was clearly what was put down by uh, the British, uh, which, you know, the inner line still exists in some parts of the Northeast today, which didn't allow mainland Indians in courts to go to these regions. And so he says, you know, this inner line itself proved that the Indians did not have control over these regions, that these regions clearly came under South Tibet. And this inner line is supposed to end where the McMohan line ends and so on. So, and these claims are, a lot of them are misguided. A lot of them are just false. So what I would say is that most scholars today, whenever they're talking about the Sino-Indian War, follow one or two of these schools of thought. Um, one believes that India was responsible for the war, that it triggered Chinese aggression through the forward policy. Um, and the second believes that even if the forward policy was put down by Nehru, it was put down because India was triggered by what China was doing in the regions. Um, so this is essentially how people categorize their views. The Maxwell-Lamb School of Thought has really influenced the way debate about Sino-Indian relations has been done for a very long time. It's because their books came out in the 1970s. So they were possibly one of the first few authoritarian works that was written. Uh, but over the last couple of years, there's been more inquiry into the war. Yeah, so th that's basically the two main schools of thought. Yeah, so let me let me kind of uh, sort of process that and sum that up, and you can tell me if I did that accurately. And, and this kind of raises a very interesting question, like when you spoke of sort of Maxwell and Lamb being called uh, like China hands, as if they are sort of peddling the China narrative, and they obviously have their own incentives. And I guess all authors will have incentives of some kind or the other. It doesn't mean that a government is necessarily paying them, but in terms of access or where they are based or what are their intellectual communities like and all of that, there will be these incentives. And uh, you pointed out that there are two schools of thought. One is sort of the one which um, was dominant in the early years. I think Maxwell's book, um, uh, India's China War, came out in 1971. And, uh, uh, you know, that's a period you also refer to the fascinating meeting with the Pakistani and the Chinese. And the Chinese obviously had reason to be wary of the Indian because, you know, they saw the British as an imperialist colonial power and uh, they were worried that India, even after independence, would continue along those lines. And Nehru's uh, forward policy uh, you know, sparked off the conflict in which they behaved responsibility, uh, responsibly. And you're pointing out that the other school of thought, which is something that is finding more voice now among Indian scholars and people like Berlin Lindner, who couldn't think of an entirely different title. He said, Uska Bukta, India's China War, I will be China's India War. No, but I get it. It's very uh, smart. Uh, basically takes... Uh, the whole approach of pointing out that, listen, China was doing all of these little things, these border disagreements and so on through the uh, uh, 1950s, right? They were the aggressors. They were the one who, you know, 
uh, took Tibet to begin with, and Nehru was just trying to respond to that. So it's really not India's fault. You know, this seems to be one of the situations where whichever case you're making, you know, it's not like there is truth out there. You can essentially believe any version of these because we don't know what the main players are thinking. It's quite likely that in certain minds of the players involved, both accounts are completely true. Like Nehru may have felt he was entirely justified and, uh, you know, Shu may have felt, what is this guy doing? And uh, uh, all of that. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking aloud and uh, trying to uh, sum up what you said. And, and, and given that this is the case, how does then um, policy towards each other in both these countries evolve? Like I presume the war is over and China is like, okay, these guys were getting too fresh and we taught them a lesson. And uh, for India, it's just a humiliation, but it's okay. Like Nehru dies a couple of years after and you'd imagine there is some kind of reset and VK Krishna Menon um, is, um, you know, consigned to history. So, you know, how do those sort of approaches within both countries domestically evolve in that period? When I think about it, I, I was speaking a little bit about how, you know, structures were overhauled and stuff like that. And I think in India since 62, we continue to have this insecurity about China. I think it's just something that we have never gotten over. This sort of national humiliation, you know, in a month they were able to completely override us. And I think you continue to have those narratives today when we talk about India and China's relationships, Um, you know, about how there's a lot that's written about how Nehru died a heartbroken man. And you could see that this clearly had an effect on his health. Um, and I think, you know, the war really left a lasting impression on India's narratives and the way it saw itself as a country. But I think more tangibly, you know, barely months after China and Pakistan reached their first border agreements in a year, they completely finalized their border, which was something that India was very angry about. And then in 1965, India and Pakistan fight another war. And this is the time where there is a real fear that India would be fighting a two-front war, right? And this is particularly true of Sikkim. There, um, this Sikkim was at this point in time still independent Himalayan kingdom, right? So there are reports that when the war with Pakistan was really beginning to heat up, the Chinese uh, government sent a note asking India to vacate from some of these posts that it had occupied along the um, border between Sikkim and China. And uh, the Indians were rather perplexed because they didn't really occupy anything. So uh, at that point in time, the governor said, you know what, just ignore the note, don't respond to it. But the note was an ultimatum in that sense. It was saying, you know, if you don't vacate in three days, then we will attack. Um, and uh, what essentially happened was that India ignored the note. Nothing came of it. Uh, and then the Chinese, I think, at the end of three days said, oh, thank you for vacating the, the land that you occupied. You know, um, so, but that really drove the fear that what would India do if it was faced with a threat, both in its eastern as well as its western sectors. And this is when India really started looking at how it was going to deal with threats along the border. Uh, something else that's also happening internally is you have to remember that uh, the Northeast, right as it looks right now, it's still not uh, very much in sort of the Indian's imagination, but it was even less at that point in time, right? What happened was that 
uh, the Chinese began to aid Naga rebels, and you know, more than about seven hundred rebels were actually trained in Yunnan and you know provided with guns. Uh, and this also happens with Manipuri revolutionaries, Mizo rebels. A lot of them get training and support. Before we get into that in detail, I think there are a couple of other things that I want to touch upon. One is uh, the Communist Party in India. The left took a huge sort of ideological uh, beating in that sense, and the CPI split after 1962, uh, th- and that's when you know you have the CPI Marxist being formed, and this is because the CPI largely condemns the war. Krishna Menon was essentially a part of it, and the CPI continues to uh, condemn the 1962 war, whereas the CPI M essentially saw the war as a fight between, you know, the socialists and the capitalists, China being the socialists, us being the capitalists. So So they were on the Chinese side. They were on the Chinese side. And after this, you know, you have people like Karu Sanyal and others traveling to Nepal and finally going to Beijing where they meet Mao and were promised men in arms. So you have that thread that eventually comes out to play. The other thing that happens is uh, you mentioned Krishna Menon. Uh, You also have a lot of army officers who go into early retirement. You know, the chief of army staff, the chief of general staff. So a lot of them, even if they weren't directly responsible for things that happened, still saw a lot of heads rolling. So just adding to what Hamsini was saying about the humiliation that uh, India faced, particularly Nehru, after the 1962 war, um, this was something that Indira Gandhi, when she became uh, Prime Minister of India, knew she wanted to fix. She wanted uh, to a, redeem the image of her father and also redeem the image of the humiliation that the Prime Minister's office itself had suffered in the country. And um, it can be argued that she was open to dialogue with China about the territorial disputes. Um, So while, you know, uh, like Hamsini was saying, there was a lot of argument about who was right on either side, there was this very small window in 1970 when both India and China were open to dialogue. But they kind of just missed each other multiple times. And um, this starts with, on the 30th of April, 1970, the day before uh, China celebrates May Day, there was a display of fireworks. Um, Now, remember at this point, um, diplomatic relations between both countries have completely broken down. Uh, Ambassadors have been called back. So there is no formal sort of representation. But there is an Indian representative in uh, Brijesh Mishra who's at uh, this display of fireworks. And um, during the meet and greet, he's approached by Mao who says, um, we cannot keep quarreling like this. Let us try and be friends. And this is seen as an enthusiastic sort of move that China is making. Mao tells uh, Brijesh Misra to uh, convey this message to the prime minister, which he uh, says that, you know, this is the time um, we can sort of resume dialogue. And so both sides are open to it. Uh, The the sort of conditions in China, which is undergoing the Cultural Revolution, as Hamsini had pointed out, also would have made negotiations easier um, because of the domestic conditions in China. And uh, there was some sort of civil unrest amongst the left in China itself. So the negotiation could have been favorable uh, for India. But 
there is a delay in response from the Indian side. Um, and Sudhendra Kulkarni has a two-part series in The Wire about the events that lead up to the 71 Bangladesh Liberation War and sort of explains the entire dynamic. So I would recommend uh, people reading that. But the reason there is a delay in um, replying from the Indian side is because, again, what Hamsini pointed out, there is um, division between the uh, CPI in India and one side is seen favoring China, um, therefore being anti-government and anti-Indira Gandhi, which did not please uh, the prime minister. And second, there was a rising insecurity towards Pakistan. So... We see a distinct shift where between Nehru and Indira Gandhi, where Nehru was trying to be the peacemaker and trying to bring in the aspirations of all Asian powers and, uh, you know, achieve them collectively. But Indira Gandhi becomes more regional. Uh, she's um, driven by securing uh, regional security. And a lot of her actions and her foreign policy is driven by that motivation. So... There is, you know, some sort of a distraction with Pakistan and how um, that is going to be handled. At the same time, and this one here is, is really exciting for an international relations scholar because you have a lot of players getting involved slowly. So this is a time that um, United States realizes it has a chance to rebuild its relationship with China. So you have uh, President Nixon and NSA Kissinger making, arranging a meeting in, uh, with China, which is, you know, a sort of secretive meeting and um, it's aided by Pakistan. So Pakistan is also involved. And uh, what is argued is that the window that India had is sort of grabbed by the US and, uh, you know, Nixon is able to sort of re-establish uh, relationships with China. Um, because Pakistan helped the United States in uh, doing that, India is unhappy and therefore turns to the Soviet Union, um, signs the Treaty of Peace and Friendship as a security from Pakistan, which China in turn views as an anti-China move. So a lot of things happen in that really short period. And of course, then you have the um, Pakistan-Bangladesh uh, Liberation War, which uh, again takes a toll on the country and uh, that window sort of closes uh, in the 70s. Yeah, and I, I had a fascinating episode on uh, 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 that year. I mean, basically the Bangladesh War with mm -hmm. Sinat Raghavan. But, uh, he, uh, you know, we spoke about the events of that year and how, if I remember correctly, Kissinger makes a secret trip to China <laughs> and he pretends he's visiting Pakistan, but he, you know, flies down to China. And today they could just, you know, uh, chat on WeChat or something and uh, kind of uh, say what they have to say while every other country watches on. Uh, because they've hacked the phones. But um, uh, let me also then sort of take a lateral detour and I'll come back to Indira Gandhi and what her policy was like and those very interesting years and what happened in the aftermath of that. And I also briefly want to talk about Sikkim. But just to take a lateral detour at the same time, you know, India's popular imagination is both shaped by and reflected in Bollywood to a certain extent, right? Or, you know, other regional uh, cinema and all that. And I found that, you know, popular culture often acts as a barometer of what 
people think and feel in the culture. So, Shivani, tell me a little bit about, um, uh, you know, how was China looked at in the Indian popular imagination? Like even today, you know, Indians are very xenophobic towards the Chinese. So what were sort of attitudes like? How were they evolving? Uh, you know, there was also this uh, Hindi-Chini bhai-bhai stuff that had uh, kind of happened. Give me some dope on that. So Bollywood presents a very interesting case um, to understand national sentiment. I should say that I haven't been exposed to regional cinema, so I I can't speak for what's happening there. If anyone has recommendations on what I would watch, uh, please let me know. I'd love to do that. But uh, speaking about Bollywood, so in the 50s, um, cinema felt, or Hindi cinema, there was a lot of social responsibility in the film. You had Guru Dutt's Pyasa, which was uh, a critique of a materialistic society. Uh, the same year, you had uh, Mother India, which was, you know, uh, the Indian nation state as it existed in the villages. And um, then you also had B.R. Chopra's Naya Dor, which was, you know, um, a salutation to Nehruvian socialism. So there's a lot of celebration of the birth of India, the growth of India, and, you know, what the aspirations that India has. Um, with the 62 war, you see a departure from social responsibility and move towards um, escapist entertainment. So you have films like Tisri Manzil, The Jewel Thief, Guide and Wak that come in the 60s, which are just purely for entertainment. They're thrillers, they're dramas, there's romance. Um, films are being shot in foreign locations. Um, and it's just pure entertainment value. The only movie about the 1962 war, which you quoted, um, is uh, Hakikat that came out two years after the war in um, 1964. And this movie has also been, um, it, has, it, it sim- over-sympathizes with the Indian side. It tries to, uh, you know, um, sort of bring down the humiliation that India uh, felt and, you know, play up the loss of life of soldiers and things like that. And, but I should point out that um, it does not villainize the Chinese. So it is only looking at the Indian point of view, what happened with the soldiers, goes into the personal lives of some of the characters, but there is no villainization of the Chinese side. It was just a war that went wrong. Um, and, uh, yeah, after that, the few films about India. So I think you had, um, Shaheed, which was based on, uh, the life of Bhagat Singh that came in 1965, but that's again, pre-independence. So again, going back to that freedom, notion of freedom struggle and uh, stuff, but, um, nothing really touches upon Indian society, um, till you have the, angry young man um, making an appearance uh, almost a decade later. So it's almost like, you know, it was just a dark moment and we chose to blot it out of the collective imagination and pretend it never happened because, you know, it's much easier to sort of, like, like the constant sort of nationalistic trope that has happened in the decade since is, you know, where you show Pakistanis as a villain and you're fighting the ISI and Sunny Deol is going to the border with a big gun and saving all of us. Uh, and uh, uh, but but China is just something that we uh, choose to sort of not think about because uh, hey look what happened. Let's get back to the politics. I mean, as you guys would know, I am no fan of 
Indira Gandhi for all the things she did in the domestic sphere. But uh, uh, at the same time, as far as her, her geopolitical uh, sort of acumen was concerned, she seems to have kind of done a much better job. One in the way she handled the Bangladesh war. And uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and Hamsini, maybe you can uh, sort of elaborate on this. She also seems to have moved away from Nehru's mistaken idealism and actually taken a much more hard-nosed, uh, realistic view of what one realist view, rather, of what one needed to do in the uh, in the neighborhood. Uh, so, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, and also, you know, one thing that kind of intrigues me is today, of course, there is a lot of talk, and I've had episodes in this as well about how sort of China and uh, uh, you know the worry of. Uh, between China and Pakistan kind of getting close together and how that's going to impact us. And there was recent talk that, you know, when Nepal cocked a snook at us, it's because, you know, uh, they've been emboldened by uh, China kind of getting there. Were these worries back then, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s? So uh, sort of take me through a bit of that period. Sure. Um, Amit, just something that I wanted to just briefly go up on before we get into the 1970s is that in the 1960s, one important thing happens, uh, which is another sort of clash between India and China. And this happens in 67, a little before um, the 70s and the Bangladesh war and all of that. And the reason why it's important is because Accepting the current crisis at Galva, that was the last crisis where India lost men across the line of actual control. So what actually happens in 1967 is there's still not a lot of scholarship that's done on it. There's a new book by Prabhul Das Gupta called Watershed 1967. So what essentially happens in 1967 is that you have um, the two passes in Sikkim, Chola and Natula, where we were afraid that the Chinese would also fight against in 65. Uh, the Indians decided to fence that border. And while they were fencing the border, uh, often there were Chinese troops that came about saying that you can't fence this border because you're in our territory. And in one of those scuffles, there were both Indian and Chinese lives lost. As a scholar, I will say that objectively, we don't have a a number, an exact number of the number of lives that were lost during that point in time. The lowest numbers put it at 30 on the Chinese side and 60 on the Indian side and the highest numbers put it on 350 on the Chinese side. So that is something that we need to keep an open mind towards. But these clashes did happen. And the other thing that sort of came out of it, which Shibani referred to when she was talking about Indira Gandhi, the reason we didn't have any ambassadors present in China is because in 67, in the same year, two Indian embassy officials were accused by the Chinese of spying. Um, And so they were beaten by the Red Guards. They were publicly humiliated. And they were eventually, you know, uh, the the Indian embassy was supposedly under siege for days with uh, people standing outside, you know, clamoring uh, to get in. And other embassies tried to send in, you know, supplies, and but they couldn't get through. And then when the Indians heard of it, the exact same thing happened here. The Chinese ambassadors were beaten up. They were, and essentially all of them were deported and became sort of like persona non grata. And that is one of the reasons why relations sad even more. And when Indira Gandhi comes into office, that's sort of, you know, the last exchange that India and China have had on an ambassadorial level. I think I agree with you. I am not a big fan of what 
uh, Indira Gandhi's policies were domestically, but on a foreign policy um, landscape, she dealt with a lot of challenges that India was facing very, very well. The Bangladesh war, which you have spoken about in detail, uh, for one. I think the other it was from then on this prevailing worry that India would lose its neighborhood, right? And why the Indira Gandhi governments onwards were afraid of this is because, as I'd mentioned, the Chinese were providing resources to uh, rebel groups. At one point in time, there was this idea that a red corridor would be formed, right? When like the Naxalite movement was coming to the fore, that it would go through India, go through Nepal, and finally go to China. And this was sort of um, the revolution spreading to all across the world. But I think Indira Gandhi was, and this is sort of um, one of the great things about studying the foreign policy about that period, is that, you know, in 1976, both countries exchanged ambassadors for the first time. And you know what happens immediately, the emergency, so nothing else happened. And so Indira Gandhi didn't really have any other contact with the Chinese while she was in power. When the Janka government comes in for a very brief period, uh, what happens is that Vajpayee visits Beijing, but he had to cut his trip short because he was protesting the Chinese invasion of Vietnam. And then you move forward, Indira Gandhi comes back to power. And the main issue then doesn't turn out to be the border. It doesn't turn out to be, you know, relations in the neighborhood. It's uh, very odd, but from what I can read, the main issues at that point in time was that in Indochina, (laughs) um, there was the war between uh, Vietnam and Cambodia. And in Cambodia, you had the Khmer Rouge, who the Chinese were backing. And you had the People's Republic of Kampuchea, uh, which was Vietnamese backed. And um, the main issue between India and China was supposedly the Indian government's recognition of the People's Republic of Kampuchea. And that became a huge issue for some reason. And that was the sort of roadblock uh, between relations. So adding to what Hamsini was saying about Indira Gandhi's foreign policy, it's the first time we see a departure from non-alignment because Indira Gandhi, like you said, was more of a realist than her father was. And there was an inclination towards balance of power politics. Um, And she also displayed a greater willingness to use coercive tactics and force. But the challenge that, you know, in the Indian government faced um, during the 70s is that there was no stability. Governments were coming and going very quickly and there was a lot of domestic disturbance that they that it had to cope with uh, because of which, as Hamsini was saying, you would establish contact with the Chinese, but you wouldn't be able to engage with uh, with China uh, because something else would happen. Right. And Hamsini, I also want you to sort of briefly mention on, uh, you know, was what happened in Sikkim significant there? Just bring me up to speed on that. And also just sort of um, another point I'd like you to clarify, which is, you know, when we uh, use the term, the line of actual control, and there is sort of in the popular imagination a border is one line, right? So it's a line. And on one side, you have the Indians and on the other side, you have the Chinese. But actually, there is no line in the sense that, you know, both countries are quite clear about what territory definitely belongs to them. But there is also a sort of no man's land in between where there is, uh, you know, much ambiguity and uncertainty. And a lot of action happens on that no man's land, like allegedly in 67 or recently what uh, uh, happened in 
Galwan, which is why, you know, you could actually have a conflict on territory that was not Chinese territory. But at the same time, uh, the Prime Minister wasn't entirely wrong when he said they haven't come into our territory. It was sort of like uh, a kind of a buffer zone. Is that understanding broadly correct? Yeah, Amit. I, I'm not, again, as I said, like a military specialist, but I, I think that is a good way to sum up the line of actual control. You know, as much as we like to imagine, you know, maps in our heads and you have the specific thing that separates India from China, that's not exactly true. You know, in 1962, um, the Chinese, you know, swept into India and then they drew back to what they believed was the line that was supposed to be the border between India and China. And we there have been a lot of border talks and stuff that I can get into, which were exchanged. And there is this sort of agreement that these are the Indian and Chinese positions and you keep a couple of uh, sometimes less than a couple of kilometers in between uh, that neither side shall pass through. And this is essentially the problem, even with the clashes that happened this year. Therefore, this fundamental misunderstanding about knowing what the border actually is. I, re- I remember reading some reports about this crisis talking about, oh, does China refer to the border as what it had captured in 1962? Because if that's the definition of the border that it's going by, then it's going to be a real problem, right? So that's um, one of the main problems, the line of actual control. Unlike the LOC, the border with Pakistan, which is fenced, which for the most part is clearly demarcated. The LAC is very ambiguous. About Sikkim, right? Um, So during the 1970s, as Shivani had spoken about, um, there was a lot of worry about neighborhood stability. There was also, you know, personal anxiety about from Indira Gandhi's end about instability within the country. Right. And this is where Sikkim becomes really interesting because Sikkim was this independent kingdom and um, it was independent the same way Bhutan was independent. So Sikkim and Bhutan both had treaties with India where India said, you know, it would advise these governments on uh, external affairs and so on, which India continues to do for Bhutan. Whereas what happened with Sikkim is that the Chogyal, or the leader of the Sikkim kingdom, married an American. And there was a lot of vitriol directed towards her, particularly by the Indians. A lot of people said, you know, she was a CIA spy uh, and she was, you know, influencing the kingdom to go against India. And, you know, we won't know if that's true just because, you know, she's a woman and in, and in a powerful position. Um, or if she was actually a CIA spy. But that's not really the point, right? The point is that you were suddenly dealing with an other problem on this front. And this is a front where you've already had a clash with just in 67. So I did an episode on Seeds of Anarchy with uh, a scholar called Deep Pal recently. And we were talking about this. And what I was essentially asking him was, you know, why did Sikkim get annexed by the Indian Kingdom? And why didn't Bhutan? You know, why was there sort of a disparity between Indian foreign policy towards the two? And what he says, uh, which I think makes a lot of sense, is that this fits into the Sikkimese imagination of India's perception towards itself, towards India, as well as of Sikkim. So I'm going to break that down a little bit. Essentially, what that means is that India had a perception of itself as a country and it perceived Bhutan and Sikkim into fitting into that imagination in a particular way. 
where I, and Bhutan did. Uh, Bhutanese army officers, for example, were trained in India. Uh, Bhutan fell in line with a lot of things that India wanted. India, in return, gave it military aid and continues to give it military aid. Sikkim, on the other hand, was starting to show a lot of signs of wanting more. And India was afraid that this was going to have to be yet another border that they would have to contend with. And that was not really something that they could deal with. There are a lot of books that are written about the annexation of Sikkim alone. Um, but I think one of the reasons why Sikkim was incorporated into the Indian Union was definitely its place on the border between India and China. And how did China react to that? Um, China did protest uh, because it saw this as sort of a unilateral move by India. And for years, China didn't really recognize uh, that Sikkim was a part of India. So that was something that uh, was part of relations. It's imagine that it reacted the same way that it would if Ladakh was made a union territory. So it, it, that's sort of the same pitch of the reaction that India is unilaterally changing borders and unilaterally changing the status quo. So that's something that's very important that happens in the 1970s. As you sort of move towards the 80s, uh, even under Indira Gandhi, uh, you have sort of the first visit of the Chinese foreign minister in 1981. And then you have five rounds of border talks. And these are important because, you know, 20 years after the original crisis is when both countries begin to agree that they actually have a problem on their hands, right? And they both took very different uh, views to it. China wanted to shelve the border issue and it wanted to focus on other things like trade. And India wanted to resolve the border issue first. So uh, the other thing that was important to note in these border talks is that India wanted a sector-by-sector -sector approach, which China really didn't want. What a sector-by-sector -sector approach essentially is, is that the Indian border, uh, the LAC in the Indian imagination is divided into three bits, right? You have the eastern sector, which is Arunachal Pradesh and Sikkim. You have the central sector, which is sort of near the border of Nepal, uh, all the way to where the Spiti Valley of Himachal Pradesh is. And then you have the western sector, which is Ladakh. So what India wanted was to say, hey, let's talk about where you think the border is on the eastern sector and where we think the border is in the eastern sector. And we can look at it from that point of view. The Chinese, on the other hand, wanted a quid pro quo. They said, no, Aksaichan is ours, Tawang, Nefa is yours, and we will agree to that. We will not agree to a sector-by-sector -sector approach. And this is something that really held up border talks for a couple of years. So just moving ahead to what happens uh, with Rajiv Gandhi, essentially, is that... I think you have to remember that the 1980s in both India and China are very, very important, right? China, for the first time, liberalizes its economy. You have Deng Xiaoping who comes up and says, you know, it doesn't matter if a cat is black or white as long as it chases the mice. And China really wants to set aside its ideological biases that it had been carrying forward for the first 20 years in its foreign policy. And you see this in a lot of reflected in all of Chinese foreign policy, actually. The 1980s is a really interesting time to study in China. And India is also sort of the stirrings of liberalization, if I might call it that. But I think a couple of important things also happened during this time. And the first is in 1986, Arunachal Pradesh was granted full statehood. And this was something that really pissed the Chinese off. 
because it was India unilaterally changing status quo. In 1986, you have clashes um, along the Sundaram Chu, uh, which is basically uh, military exercises uh, of India in Arunachal Pradesh, which finally lead to escalation. Uh, people don't really lose lives. Both sides manage to de-escalate the issue and then go back to their respective sides of the border. But this crisis essentially turns the tide in India-China relations because after this is when N.D. Tiwari suggests that India and China expand cooperation in other fields, like it's a completely new idea. And uh, this is when the Chinese finally supposedly understood for the first time since 62 that the Indians didn't go to war. So until this time, the Chinese claimed that they didn't really get a sense that the Indians wanted peace along the border. They only understood that Indians were being extremely aggressive along the border. Um, so finally, a year later, Rajiv Gandhi goes to China. And this trip is the first time in 30 odd years that uh, an Indian head of state has visited China. So this is an important moment in India-China relations. But Rajiv Gandhi faces a lot of criticism for it within India. And this is because a lot of people point out that he was the one who recognized that Tibet was a part of China, but he did this unilaterally. Uh, the Chinese didn't really offer anything in return. They didn't recognize Sikkim. They didn't recognize Arunachal Pradesh. And so Rajiv Gandhi was really criticized uh, at that point in time um, by the opposition that he was giving away a lot of the Indian standing on the issue. So, uh, uh, sort of a couple of thoughts. One is, I'll actually object to your uh, characterization of those uh, years as the <laughs> early years of liberalization. I, I thought you because, might. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. I think that's a post-facto narrative that, you know, people are trying to uh, give the family some uh, credit for the good that came out of liberalization. And I, I, I'm i not sure how much truth there is to that. Mm -hmm. But uh, quite apart from that, what I sort of, uh, you know, kind of see happening is that one, obviously, Deng moving towards more of a market economy within China also signals a fundamental mindset shift, which impacts everything, not just, you know, economics locally, but also foreign policy, because a mindset shift is one of, you know, positive sum growth where you trade and everybody benefits and blah, blah, blah. And it seems to me that, you know, that approach starts uh, showing off in other domains as well, possibly. One, uh, would you agree with that? Is that true? And True, with India, there is an increase of assertiveness in the region. For example, uh, the nonsense that uh, Rajiv Gandhi gets up to in Sri Lanka, for example. And, uh, uh, you know, does that sort of play a part where they are trying to balance China's influence? And, you know, how is the thinking developing on the respective roles of the two countries within South Asia at this point in time? Amit, I would sort of object to your saying that them moving towards market economy is a fundamental shift for the same reason why you object that I call it stirrings of liberalization, right? Because China also, you know, now when we look back, we look at it as this one long continuous history. But at that point in time, it was just the end of the Cultural Revolution. It was the fall of, you know, the four. And therefore, people were also really scared to experiment. No one knew if anything that was going to happen in China was going to continue for, a, forget a long period of time, for even a short period of time, right? So there is this shift that occurs, but I would say it occurs in the latter half of the 1980s rather than the first half 
um, because the Chinese government at that point in time also starts only with policy experimentation. It doesn't do these big sweeping reforms that it now claims that it's done, you know, and we can argue about this till the cows come home. There are different views about this. But at least my take on this is that um, the shifts in foreign policy, the shifts in the economy are still small. There is a marked difference in what happened earlier, which is, you know, a personality cult driven, ideologically minded foreign policy, which essentially looked at expanding, you know, the revolution across the world. I think what China wanted by this point in time was to not open up. Those are, at the end of the day, not the words that they use, but they wanted to focus on improving the quality of life. They wanted to focus on just becoming richer. And the way, the only way that they could see this happening was to have some semblance of stability in the economy. And you can't have uh, any semblance of stability in the economy if your foreign policy is constantly denouncing other countries or getting into tips with them. Um, the other thing I think we need to remember with respect to your second question, you know, about whether there's an increase in assertiveness in the region, I think it's important to remember that during this time, particularly in the late 1980s, there's a lot of worry about the Soviet Union because uh, Gorbachev had made some speeches about uh, Glasnost and Perestroika, but we it was still difficult to read those signals. No one knew that the Soviet Union was going to fall at this point in time. But I think, at least from what I've read, is that Rajiv Gandhi wanted to also diversify his foreign policy. And when I mean him, I don't mean him as a person, but rather the foreign policy administration that he was commanding, is that the establishment at that point in time wanted to go ahead with non-alignment and realize that if they would lose the Soviet Union, then they needed to be on better terms with the Chinese, because that balance that Shivani had mentioned a couple of years ago would be lost otherwise. What do you think, Shivani? Um, you're absolutely right. I think uh, India was aware of the association that it had with the Soviet Union could was had a negative impact on India's um, image because of the Soviet Union's involvement in Afghanistan. And uh, it wanted to sort of keep Soviet Union at, at a distance. And that's why in the 80s, you see there's a push to sort of build relationships with the US and China, but most of the energies went towards, uh, you know, the Indian subcontinent. So you have Pakistan, Sri Lanka, like Amit pointed out, as well as Nepal. Um, that's what's occupying uh, most of the time for the Ministry of External Affairs. Yeah, and Shivani, I'll turn to you now as we kind of take the narrative forward. But before that, we'll take the narrative back briefly. My, my sense of the sort of uh, when the economics of China kind of started shifting is also, you know, the late 70s was an important time where they made a move away from collectivist farming and a slightly deeper recognition of uh, property rights at that level. But I mean, leave that aside. It's obviously a process which takes many years. So Shibani kind of like moving forward and, and coming all the way to um, sort of eventually to uh, the 2000s and Hu Jintao. And, and China is really changing through this period. And equally, their foreign policy is really changing. And these shifts are really interesting. The shift to sort of uh, whose approach to, towards um, 
foreign policy and the world in general and uh, you know uh, how he internally looks at china and then later the much more aggressive authoritarian tone that she has taken uh, since so you know so take me through this sort of historical shift and what's happening here so in the last 20 years um a lot has changed but if we go back to the 2000s um at this time deng's philosophy of um hide your capabilities and bide your time is is still very important for chinese foreign policy uh beijing has made a pragmatic accommodations and is learning to live with the hegemon which is the united states and so policy adjustments are made according to this reality what happens in um, 2001 is 911 us is now concentrating all of its efforts to sort against international terrorism it becomes obsessed with iraq and this gives china somewhat of a window to start being assertive and to be a little more vocal about its interests uh, which it hadn't been doing so far at least internationally and you know china uses the 2000s to signal its intent as a rising power and what are these aspirations the chinese leadership slowly includes more and more controversial issues and uh, expands this list of china's core interests so the pursuit of foreign policy becomes this we are just china is just pursuing its uh, core interests and it becomes a little more assertive so you have um, the south china sea being mentioned uh, territorial disputes with uh, japan coming uh, being mentioned um there are certain things um being talked about with the southeast asian countries etc um and so china is growing increasingly confident and unfortunately for china there's a moment of frustration with the 2008 economic meltdown so after the 2008 economic meltdown china has to calibrate all of its efforts and ensure the socio economic makeup of china is not Uh, damaged significantly and suddenly it has to sort of balance wanting to be a great power but also you know being responsible for towards its domestic audience um so it's in this under hu jintao china is in this middle state where it wants to you know uh, eat at the table with the big kids it's ready to do that but also there's a lot of stuff happening back home that it needs to pay attention to and there are questions about whether china is ready to be to take on the responsibilities of being a world power and it's interesting that you you know you refer to those years as a middle state you know the middle state of the middle kingdom that could be the title of your first book and that also then seems to indicate that there is a transition happening here that you have a china which is kind of uh, it's a rising power it's asserting itself it's looking at you know itself vis-a-vis the us and then gradually what happens is you have the 2008 shift and china is you know uh, you know telling the us that you know what the hell we were following you and you know what is this that you've done and and then under xi you have this sort of a much greater assertiveness where like would it be fair to say then that this is no longer a middle state now china has said that okay we have arrived and we are going to compete with everybody and we are going to caucus no get you and uh, you know we are taking our place is it fair to say that that's the change in approach that has happened so one of the things that change uh, with 
she uh, coming to power is earlier while while china was being assertive there was not a very strong link between its global power aspirations and what what it was doing towards achieving them that's what she has been able to do uh, very successfully and um, there's a very decisive leadership style that he follows um, and also like when you think of she coming to power the first few things that come to your mind are the anti corruption campaign that he ran president for life but there has been a very calculated and gradual move that has been facilitated by um, events that took place in the 2000s which are allowing she to sort of reap the benefits of an assertive china in the uh, international stage robert blackwell and kurt campbell when they write about she's foreign policy say that one of the things that make him different or this foreign policy different is this phase of foreign policy different is she's willingness to use every instrument of statecraft from military assets to uh, geoeconomic intimidation as well as uh, economic rewards which we see in the form of the belt and road initiative to pursue the geopolitical objectives that china has and uh, i would also like to point out that she's policies exhibit a continuity so a lot of scholars argue that you know this is new and it's different yes but it's not new um it's not unexpected there is a continuity it's just an increase in assertiveness on say territorial matters and um, in the east china sea and south china sea but deng's hydro capabilities and bide your time have naturally expired now this is the right moment she happens to be in the moment uh if there was anyone else the result would probably have been the same yeah so that the kind of repudiating the great man theory of history and saying that this is how foreign policy and you know geopolitics was evolving anyway and what's also interesting in the last few years is that you know just in terms of coherence of geopolitical policy uh, america's completely fallen apart with you know trump at the helm and you have all these insane trade wars which would have been unforeseeable i think uh, years ago because they just make absolutely no sense it's a negative sum game against the world and at the same time it seems to me that what china has done is you know very focused very cogent in terms of you know the belt and road which in fact i'll ask you to kind of expand on because it seems to me to be a very good um, uh, sort of uh, illustration of uh, how they are using their economic power to enhance their standing in the world and their uh, influence over other countries so uh, tell me a little bit about you know belt and road and what's happening there and it also seems to me and tell me if you guys agree with it that you know indian foreign policy towards china doesn't uh, or towards uh, the region doesn't seem to have any of the same cogency where we, you know we are, we are following the reflexive patterns of the past uh, in a sense and doing the same old same old while china actually has like a focused vision on how to deal with the region and how to deal with india hamsini would you would you say that that's um okay this is a couple of different things at play right what i wanted to point out earlier to you amit is that you talked about how us foreign policy with trump at the helm seems to be falling apart and i think one important thing in what shibani was talking about is also other countries reactions to china right and hu jintao and like much of chinese foreign policy in the 2000s 
is devoted in telling people that China is going to rise peacefully, that China is not a hegemonic power like the United States or any other imperialist country, because China has gone through, you know, the century of humiliation and has emerged to the other side. So their rise is not going to be the rise of any other country. But what happens with the 2008 crisis? Um, and 2008 is also important, well, at least in Beijing's history, it sees it as important because 2008 is the year that Beijing hosts the Olympics, right? And this is supposed to really mark the year that China arrives. And I think what happens around this time, 2010-11, when Obama comes to power, you have Hillary Clinton talking about the Asian century. You have a lot of people across Australia and Singapore starting to talk about the Indo-Pacific century. And, you know, the idea and the reason why the Asia-Pacific, the Indo-Pacific really come into parlance and really come into the spotlight is because India, and to a greater extent China, at that time faced fewer effects of the 2008 crisis. Um, and, and this is the point where you have a lot of reform that is being called for, right? This is when BRICS and the AIIB and all of these ideas really come to the fore or the G20, because now it's being seen as, oh, the world is no longer just the US and perhaps Russia. It's all of these smaller countries in Asia that are going to take over. And I guess over the last decade, we've seen that change as well with Xi. And I think what Shivani's pointed out is very, very important um, with respect to how assertive that she is being. But I would say that there's often a fallacy, Amit, that when you're outside China, what China is doing seems to be like a concerted effort that they have a vision, that they know what they're doing. And I think for the most part, they don't. I'm not going to discount what China is doing, but I think that this is part of Chinese strategy, that they want to convince the world that they do have a vision for it, that all of this is going towards the great socialist society, whatever that might be, right? And I would really, you know, question our biases in thinking about all of China's um, foreign policy as following a single file narrative in that sense. Uh but that does not mean that India is not middling through its foreign policy in the neighborhood. Shivani would be a better person to talk about that. But I do believe that perhaps Indian foreign policy with China is still reckoning how to deal with this country that a decade ago we were being compared to, but not really anymore, right? So it's clear that the gap that India and China had at one particular time has now widened to the point that China is definitely a player who you can't ignore on the world stage. Whereas India, perhaps you can still ignore it on the global stage. Uh, Shivani, what do you think about the neighborhood? So to your point about how India is dealing with China, I think I completely agree. Both sides are trying to figure out how to cope with the other there is a significant power asymmetry between the two. I think um, there is an acknowledgement of that existing. Unless India is able to catch up with the economic development and growth that China is seeing, I don't 
you know that that powers asymmetry is going to exist that said how india is approaching china is trying to see what are the issues where india and china can cooperate uh, what are issues that they will always have competition or uh, conflict in and uh, what are the some of the areas where they will just coexist um that seems to be my understanding shibani i was just thinking while yeah, you were talking okay. about this i'm not sure india will ever be able to catch up with china in that sense the the chinese style of growth is simply not possible here and the, the one of the reasons why i say that is because china doesn't have to ever worry about things like land acquisition because there is no concept of property rights right so if your land gets taken over by the government oh too bad here is a payout that the government might or might not award you and that's it whereas in india if you look at you know development projects or something like that which often gets talked about right with the one belt one road particularly in south asia there's often a lot that's talked about about oh india doesn't do these projects really quickly um and if you look at a lot of these projects particularly in the neighborhood and even developmental projects within india land acquisition is a huge problem in any society which is not centralized or which the government does not play a huge hand in but but you know hamsini i'll just say that there's just one aspect of i agree with you we'll never catch up with them the reason for that that not just is that china is too authoritarian but also that india is too authoritarian in another direction china is too authoritarian in the direction of sort of you know all of the things that you pointed out that there is no friction between getting things done so to say india is too authoritarian in the way of uh, in the sense of standing in the way of free markets uh, you know starting from nehru's of socialism to uh, indira gandhi and to modi today where um, you know given the fact that um, given our population which was our great strength we you know we could have dominated labor intensive manufacturing from the 70s onwards before china got into the game and got serious about it and we missed all of those opportunities so while i agree with you that uh, we won't catch up with them it's not just because they are doing something wrong and we can't do that wrong thing we are also messing up really massively in terms of the economy the other sort of you know when you were talking earlier about how we can often uh, you know commit the narrative fallacy i think though you didn't use those words and assume that hey china has a cogent vision and they don't uh, necessarily do and it was sort of interesting that you know to my mind firstly if you have a vision for communicating what your vision should be then you could argue that you actually do have a vision and and secondly the thing is that even if you uh, regardless of what your intent or vision might be if your actions are cogent and moving in a certain direction and it seems to the outsider that that you do have a vision then in a de facto sense it doesn't really make a difference of what your original intent was so i'll go back to the question that i i kind of asked earlier about you know, you know for those of my listeners who are kind of not aware of uh, the belt and road initiative and what a big deal it is in geopolitical terms and uh, you know how it is both changing the game and a reflection of how much the game has changed you know um, uh, shibani would you like to chat a little bit about that the belt and road initiative um if you break it down to simple terms is a a trade network that spreads across the entire world allowing china access to a lot of markets um but also giving it opportunities in terms of 
the BRI thing. So uh, it's a trade network giving um, China access to new markets across the world. It is a very important uh, foreign policy initiative of the Chinese government. And uh, what you see, India is not uh, on board with the BRI. And that's because it feels that it's a little intuitive. Um, it doesn't want to give China the kind of control that BRI uh, agreements sort of allow for. And uh, we see that increasingly in the Indian subcontinent, a lot of states, including Pakistan, are a part of the BRI. And that is adding to the insecurity that India feels towards China. Yeah, and and there is also uh, you know you know a dual sense of BRI where one is that look it's a trade network and it's positive sum, but there is also the fear that they are sort of building these uh, dependencies so that all of these nations, including Pakistan and nations in the region, sort of uh, become more and more dependent on China and kind of have to uh, listen to them. And and what is India's approach to this, and what should be India's approach to this? Uh, just a couple of things. So the one belt one road by Shivani is right in saying that, you know, it's exploring new markets. And this is why I was saying that a lot of this is the narrative fallacy or even a confirmation bias, Amit, is because the belt and road now includes projects that were started in the 90s, you know, and it just subsumes a lot of these projects under what was launched three, four years ago and, you know, repackages all of this under nice new branding. You're, you're making <laughs> she sound like Modi ji now. <laughs> Modi she. Uh, no, but it, it is what it is in the sense that a lot of the projects that was that are now claimed by the Belt and Road didn't start out as Belt and Road projects. They just started out as development projects and then um, became part of the Belt and Road. And I agree with Shibani in that earlier we were talking about uh, C's assertiveness and the Belt and Road really fits into sort of China's giant strategy, perhaps. But a lot of things really don't add up for it. And you can see it just in the way that the Belt and Road unfolds, right? I was at uh, an overland port in Chengdu, near Chengdu, which is supposed to be where a train starts from Chengdu and goes all the way up to Poland, right? And, um, and and it was very interesting to be there. Also, because when I was there, we noticed that Nepal was not part of the world map, only it was indicated as part of China, borders were wrong, and a lot of people raised objections to what was happening. And it, to my mind, I would just think that, you know, if you're starting an international project that's communicating your vision to the world, you won't want to offend a small country that is already uh, very easily offended. So anyway, th that was sort of just my tangential experience into uh, what the BRI could sometimes look like on the ground. But I think one of India's re reasons for staying away from the BRI is a very real issue of sovereignty. Now, the biggest project of the Belt and Road is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. And this is a corridor that passes from China through Xinjiang through the Pakistan-occupied Kashmir border, all the way down to Qatar. So this is not just a highway. This is also a port. These are pipelines, electricity grids, internet, fiber optic cables, anything and everything that you can think of has come under this project. Um, and why India objects to it is because, at the end of the day, India does not accept that the China-Pakistan border is valid because India still believes that this goes against India's sovereignty. And that is the main reason why India 
uh, sites, at least that's the main reason that India cites for not being part of the Belt and Road Initiative. China has tried to get India to be part of the Belt and Road Initiative for many years. And I honestly, you know, particularly now don't see that happening because of, uh, you know, the Indian government has recently been announcing that all Chinese investments are going to come under additional scrutiny. About a month ago, the Ministry of Corporate Affairs actually passed a, a new law which said that some sort of Chinese investments were going to come under additional scrutiny. And we know that bureaucracy is a pain. So uh, a lot of things are happening, at least to indicate that China, that India does not definitely want to be part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and I think that is something that is set to continue. This is at least my reading of the Belt and Road. And, you know, coming back to the present time and listeners have kind of stuck with this episode for so long, uh, <laughs> wondering that, but what about the Galwan Valley? Why did they attack us now? So, you, you know, give me, give me a sense of what is China thinking now? Like, of course, they do things when the rest of the world is distracted, as we know from the 62 war itself, because the Cuban Missile Crisis is going on. And yeah, okay, the big boys are busy and let's, uh, uh, you know, dip tower mamla with India in the meantime. But now you would imagine, you know, the whole world is kind of struggling with the pandemic, including India. So what is China's game here? You know, uh, it would seem to me that whatever little gains that you want to make in terms of borders, you know, minute gains in territory at best, they don't have imperialistic ambitions. So, you know, so what's going on? What's what's happening? So my reading of the current crisis and what's happening is that you know, through this whole podcast, I, I also spoke about this when we were discussing the 1980s, that um, China wanted to separate the issue of border and uh, other things that we could have in common. And that's sort of the pattern that our cooperation over the last 20 years has formed, right? Particularly in the last couple of years, you have informal summits that are happening, you have more trade and so on. But with the current crisis, India is the one that's keen for the border to be resolved. Um, because this, at the end of the day, is something that occupies Indian imagination a lot. And this is India's largest border. So it, it's no wonder that India, that it's India's largest occupation, right? For the Chinese, on the other hand, this is something that they've shown in the past in the South China Sea as well, is that they're very content to play the long game in this, you know, to construct a couple of small islands, someone will protest, they will retreat, and then they will construct a couple of more islands, someone will protest until status quo is changed. So I think at least my reading of what is happening currently is that we spoke about um, M. Taylor Francis in the first uh, half of the episode and his thesis that China is more willing to compromise when there is an internal crisis and more willing to go head to head on over a confrontation whenever there's an external crisis. And I think that is particularly telling now. Uh, I think China feels that the world is distracted enough, which is why you have a national security law that is being passed in Hong Kong. It is why you have uh, some tensions with Vietnam in the South China Sea. The other thing that I think is quite important to remember is that when India made Ladakh a union territory last year, China again registered protests, like we'd spoken about multiple times. Uh, and this really seems to have pushed China's buttons somewhere. And so this aggression could also be a reaction of what happened with Kashmir um, and, and the abrogation of 370. 
Um, Hamsini makes a really important point about China playing the long game, and I completely agree with that. The the sort of um, scuffles and minor conflicts along the LSE are not something new. Uh, if, even if we look back just the last decade, this is sort of status quo for both India and China. There, there'll be like an occasional crossfire and um, stuff like that. The public claim over Galwan Valley is new, but the the territorial dispute, as we have discussed, isn't. And um, I would also agree with Hamsini that it's not just China taking an assertive uh, position against India. There are other conflicts that it's bringing up. Uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, all of these are in the news again. It's all happening simultaneously. What Hamsini spoke about is one school of thought that this is opportunism. The world is distracted by the coronavirus. So uh, China is just looking at this as a chance to create some trouble because governments are distracted with a public health emergency. The other argument is that it's, again, acting out of deep insecurity and that it's just a continuation of um, the strategic objectives that China has. It just seems like the timing of it is extraordinary because uh, we have a pandemic. But uh, for China, it's regardless of that, you know, it's continuing on its sort of. Um, so those are the two broad positions that people are taking uh, about this. Right. So um, two points that um, Hamsini mentioned about the BRI that I wanted to add to. First is that not everything is going well with the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, last month, the Chinese Foreign Ministry said that um, the projects under the BRI had suffered significantly during the pandemic uh, because a lot of the in infrastructure development had to sort of um, be shut down and it was incurring a big financial cost. So while they have accepted that this is a huge economic cost for China, I would also like to point out a lot of the uh, invest infrastructure projects that China is investing in it is not sure whether it will get the return on the investment that it's making. There is no guarantee that these projects will bring back all the money, at least all the money that's going into them. Um, you have the, uh, the question of Afghanistan. China really wants the BRI to sort of take off there, but there are concerns about terrorism um, and, you know, the safety of the Chinese people uh, living staying in Afghanistan so it's trying to get Pakistan to sort of mediate that discussion and the other point I wanted to make about India's opposition to the BRI based on uh, sovereignty of the BRI going against the sovereignty of the country um, this is the same argument that India uses to convince other nations in the uh, Indian subcontinent to be careful of of China, there's constant reminders to watch. You know, you, you keep going back to the Sri Lankan example. Remember the debt trap. Remember Humbantota. Be careful about what your engagement is like with China when it comes to the BRI. And we see that sort of Bangladesh is listening. We know that there was some renegotiation of the loan terms uh, with China. Uh, Maldives has also asked for, you know, renegotiating those terms again. So, uh, yeah, those are the two things I had to say. 
I think, uh, Shibani, one thing that you've raised a very pertinent point is that these countries are revising terms. And I think, you know, the sort of the good thing about China being in the neighborhood, and I, I don't know if we can characterize it as a good thing, but is that for the first time in a very long time, um, countries in the Indian subcontinent have an alternative, right? And what happens with smaller powers is that they generally hedge bigger powers against each other and then sort of scramble for what's left. And it's perfectly understandable. And I think a lot of countries are renegotiating the terms of the PRI because they don't want to be stuck in debt traps. And I think they're very aware of the threats that could come with it. The other thing I think is that it really betrays um, the failure that India has in terms of delivering on some of these projects in the region. And this is also forcing um, them to revise deals with India. And I guess this would now then be up to India to provide better projects. And that is something that we ought to be able to do. I sort of like your phrasing here of it's a good thing that China is in the neighborhood <laughs> as if we have an option that, hey, China moved away one day. They, China is now between US and Canada and let them deal with, you know, the big guy. That's kind of a great point that you raised that, you know, it's really a good deal for all the smaller nations that both China and India are trying to wangle influence and spend their money and kind of doing all of that. And they can play this competition off and they can play India-China off against each other and um, some good can come out of it. And because all trade is a positive something, it could be good for China and India as well. But is India as focused towards all of these, like one, of course, you would argue that this is an important lever that we have, that if we engage more deeply and try to uh, increase our influence among all of these nations, where China also wants to play a big role, then that's a, a sort of a lever we have to keep China at bay and to sort of balance that. But my question there is, one, are we doing enough of that? And two, do we really have, like, what are the levers that we really have? Because one of the things that became obvious in this whole Galwan Valley thing is that regardless of how China looks at it, we can't afford for this thing to escalate because uh, any kind of war, nuclear or otherwise, it's just going to be bad for us. Uh, beyond the point, we can't let it escalate. So then the question comes up, what are the levers that we have by which we can influence China's behavior? Um, I would say that India is not doing enough in the neighborhood. And um, to a certain extent, it just underestimates the, the allies that it has, uh, you know, right around it. And I say this because the efforts to build relationships with the neighbors has not been consistent. It's episodic. And I would say that the states in the neighborhood see India as only if it moves too close to China will India get involved. Otherwise, India doesn't have a stake in the country, which is very unfortunate. I think India as a country needs to make consistent efforts to ensure the neighbors that it is, it is a presence, it is there for support, it is going to balance out the Chinese influence because the Chinese influence is also not something that all neighbors are very happy about. Uh, both India and China seem to sort of interfere with the internal uh, politics of the smaller states, and that is not appreciated by these countries. But talking about the Indian side, it seems like sometimes India doesn't care. Like you'll have 
I, I can't recall the name, but uh, there was an Indian publication that got the name of the king of Bhutan wrong. So they used a picture of the, the current king, but used the name of his predecessor. And these are small things. I mean, they appear to be small things uh, for India, but it is a big deal for Bhutan. It is going to impact your relationship. That said, the neighbors also are very aware of the leverage that they hold, both against India and China, and they're not afraid to use it to balance the two. The other part of my question was, uh, what can India do now? Like, if you put yourself in the Prime Minister's shoes, what are the options he had on the day that the news about uh, Galwan Valley broke? Like, okay, so many of our soldiers have been... uh, Uh, killed by the Chinese, but what can we do? And I guess it's a two-part question. One is what can we do in terms of uh, controlling uh, sort of the the domestic fallout of this, which they are trying to sort of manipulate through, uh, where they are trying to sort of build this narrative of, oh, nothing really happened, but we taught them a lesson at the same time by banning TikTok. But uh, apart from that, what are the realistic options that are on the table? What could Modi have done? What can Modi do? The way I see it is that there is no one right answer to this. There have to be multiple approaches that have to um, be used simultaneously as India engages with China. Um, The first is external balancing, which I think India does well with the bigger powers, but uh, fails to do with the allies within the neighborhood. So I would say building institutional uh, relationships in the Indian subcontinent um, that are not d- driven just by personalities or you know the heads of state uh, because that is temporary but if you are able to establish institutional relationships that go beyond personalities and administrations I think that would be uh, more fruitful and the second approach I think is again continuous engagement with China um, we can't just frown and say, I'm not going to talk to you. Dialogue has to go on engagement in uh, areas where you can cooperate with one another uh, is necessary because there is an economic dependency um, that India has with China and any move that will harm India economically is, I don't think it makes sense because you're trying to prove a point, but you're also harming your own economy. So, yeah, I don't think there has to be engagement. It has to be done in a wise manner. Yeah, and I think that's what when, you know, people use the term economic warfare, they they don't get it. That The point is that anything you do against the economy of the other country also harms the people of your own country. Like, you know, banning Chinese products, for example, would actually be hurting your own people more than anything else. So I'm not sure people who don't... Uh, uh, use TikTok much would uh, kind of agree with that. Um. Um, I'm just going to borrow an analogy from Manoj Kevalramani who wrote this in the Hindustan Times. He said, um, if you are going to spit on someone else, make sure you don't cut your own nose while doing it. That's mixing metaphors, actually. Manoj needs to attend my writing class. So our final China scholar, but I'm not sure if this particular uh, sentence, I thought it would be something like, just, just make sure you aren't so close to him that it bounces back on you which would uh, have been, yeah, but oh my God, why have you put that picture in my head? Uh, Hamsini, you were saying something. (laughs) You know, in Tamil, we have a saying that says, if you throw a stone into the gutter, it will splash back at you. Uh, That's better. (laughs) (laughs) 
um sorry manoj no so a couple of thoughts on what you were saying on what we could do right and i think this apart from the policy options that are on the table that i will leave to our extremely qualified bureaucrats to get to i think there are some fundamental institutional problems within the indian government that we need to address amit and i think the first is that the economic moves that we're talking about right is i've argued against this app ban for various reasons and the the smallest ones being that you know consumer choice will be limited and this is going to backfire on india's tech scene which desperately needs investments but the other thing is that india needs to realize that its whole bargaining power on the world stage comes from its economy no one wants to deal with a large poor country amit those exist we want to have nothing to do with them and we cannot afford to be them so your economic policy is not fungible as your foreign policy your a strong economy needs to be the basis for you to have a strong foreign policy you know even with the coronavirus there's been so much talk about how global supply chains are going to shift at the end of this what has india done to actually take advantage of this shifting of the global supply chains we talk about ease of doing business and so on but i really don't see a lot of that extending beyond mumbai and delhi and we can see that you know countries like vietnam countries like bangladesh are getting a lot of industries that are now moving out of china china because it is developing is shifting some of its more labor uh intensive industries to its poorer regions and to other countries in southeast asia so this is something that at the end of the day we should have considered um the other thing that i would say is that you know we talk about india's soft power in terms of bollywood and yoga but i remember brookings recently having a report out that talks about how south asian students not indian south asian are now flocking to china and earlier a lot of these students would come to india but we no longer have globally competitive educational institutions and even when we do our society is xenophobic to students from all around the world and therefore india is not an attractive place to come and stay i think the other thing is that you know indians fundamentally want to take a strong line against china and i understand this we should be ready to stand up to a bully at any point in time we should be prepared to escalate crises however i think we need to fundamentally assess if that is the only line that we should be taking whenever something with china happens this is something that i hear that we need to take a strong line against china i was actually hearing some intellectuals who were saying we shouldn't have indian students who go study in china and i'm opposed to this for personal reasons as well but i think you know they were saying if indian students go study in china they will not take a strong line for india and i think a lot of this goes back to indian scholarship about china and this is something that i'm very passionate about because bread and butter but we have a fundamental lack of indian scholars who are working very deeply with chinese issues we have very few scholars in the country who can speak the language fluently we have very few scholars who've lived in china who understand china now i've had a lot of people say you know this is foreign policy all states are the same why do you need to have exposure to china why do you need to have to live there 
you know, your foreign policy against China should be the same as your foreign policy towards South Korea, if that's who you're bordering. I can understand that argument, but I think that we still have a fundamental lack of primary knowledge about Chinese systemic thinking and Chinese foreign policy. Everything that our policymakers depend on seem to come from American scholarship or Western scholarship. And therefore, I would actually argue that this is where we should be nationalist. We should be more nationalist about having knowledge systems that would inform our policymakers. Uh, so I think when you say what can we do whenever we have a crisis, we can present our policymakers with better options. And the way we do that is to build domestic structures and systems of knowledge that provide the best policy solutions. Yeah, I mean, I'm taking three thoughts away from that. One is, of course, as you said, and I completely agree, the importance of economic growth for foreign policy. Uh, you know, your ex-colleague Nitin Pai once wrote a, a piece uh, which had the headline, India's best foreign policy is 8% economic growth. And I couldn't agree more. And uh, you said it very well when you said that, you know, uh, economic policy is not fungible, foreign policy may, but in terms of economics, we just have to aim uh, for that kind of growth. And I completely agree with you that homegrown scholarship with experience within China is important. Yes, you can look at all states as rational actors and therefore draw whatever conclusions you draw from that. But the granularity of your understanding of, you know, the nuances of how a particular people might think about a particular problem or about, you know, what the popular imagination within the country is, which will also shape what its leaders think and, uh, you know, create the incentives that they respond to. That is also uh, incredibly important. And, you know, the third point on which um, uh, you expressed yourself so strongly, and I agree with you, is that we need to build intellectual capacity on these matters. I think in a lot of matters in our policy, not just foreign policy, but other policy, there is my sense from the outside that we are ruled by inertia, that there are these practices of the past, some bad practices, some perhaps not so bad, but they just continue out of inertia because that's the way things have always been. And we need to build intellectual capacity on the outside of these institutions, but, you know, within our country and engaging deeply with China in this context so that we can take those learnings kind of in a crisis like this. And if we had that intellectual capacity and we see the stirrings of it among the uh, two fine scholars who are with me on the show right now, thought experiment I would pose to them and therefore I will pose for you is this, that, okay, we are sort of assuming that these are sort of the things that we should do in the long term. We should have 8% economic growth. We should uh, have greater engagement with all our countries in the uh, region. We should, you know, as Nitin keeps saying, maybe also show some involvement in the South China Sea so that that also becomes a lever where, where which we can use against China. But the thought experiment is that supposing they are far more belligerent and they want everything now and they want every dispute settled in their favor now and they are acting with men coming across the border and tanks and whatever. Supposing, you know, that is their approach. How are we to handle it? Supposing, you know, uh, Mr. Modi does get that communique that they have crossed the line of control and they have said that X area is ours. Uh, how are we to, um, are there realistic ways of tackling it? Do we sort of get into a conflict where um, enormous damage could be caused? Do we just roll over and um, uh, sort of give them what they want? H how would you think about that? 
So suppose China is more belligerent. Suppose they cross the border tomorrow. Uh, I think something that we haven't really discussed a little is uh, the role of nuclear weapons, right? At the end of the day, India and China are both nuclear weapon states. And therefore, if there is a war-like scenario, there would be a threshold of escalation after which one of the countries would choose to go nuclear. Now, theoretically, before this threshold is reached, a lot more international actors will be concerned that this could lead to mutual annihilation and therefore there will be de-escalation. But I think if there is aggression from the Chinese in blatantly you know, marching through India's territory and claiming large chunks of land. India is not the India of 1962. Um, we can sort of compare militaries and things like that. But I think India would be in a position where at that point in time, they could provide a reaction that leads to escalation. What I'm saying is that I think India would be willing to escalate. And that's a little bit of what was seen in the Galvan crisis as well. And I think it's important to note that a lot of our military structures do exist and are prepared for escalation in this manner. But I would, at the end of the day, discount a huge war happening because we are nuclear power states. Yeah, I mean, that's assuming both people are rational actors and treat each other as rational actors. Because if we sort of go back to game theory in the game of chicken, for example, about who is more irrational or who can uh, sort of show themselves to be more irrational. And it's clear to all concerned that at some point Modi has to back down. That, uh, you know, if things start escalating, she knows that Modi has to back down at some point. Uh, There will be more international pressure on India than on China, you know, given the levers that other nations have and we are far weaker. And there is sort of this fog of uncertainty about how China's actors think and what they will do, uh, at least relative to India. But anyway, maybe I'm just analyzing a thought experiment too much. But uh, I'm just doing that because it just seems to me that anybody in on Modi's seat just has really difficult um, choices before him. My view is that should sort of China be aggressive, um, India will act in a manner that displays its military capability to uh, take China on, but be careful enough not to escalate. Um, and that's a very fine balance, but I think that is that is going to be the objective um, of the Indian side. Um, Wasn't that Nehru's forward policy? <laughs> yes, but I, I don't think India would... The, the cost of going to war is something that that the Indian side realizes um, the financial, the social, the the political cost of going to war, which is why it would sort of restrain from escalating. Um, from the Chinese side, Amit, you were saying that, you know, uh, India would face a lot more international pressure than China would. But my understanding is that China is not ready to face the isolation that would come from, you know, such an escalation. And maybe that is one of the considerations that the Chinese side will have. Realistically, do you think anybody would isolate them? You can't afford to isolate yourself from China. 
I mean, even we haven't done it despite banning a few apps, but we can't really do it because otherwise, you know, a lot of our electricity comes from machines made in China. Uh, you know, Vivek Call and I did an episode of Econ Central uh, on this. Uh, you know, um, if Indians want to really boycott China, they'll have to stop drinking milk in many places because your dairy production equipment comes from there. Uh, I mean, I was actually thinking about this and just because it's a thought experiment, right? If you look fundamentally at the history of wars across the world, you will see the weaker power as acting more irrational, right? Like if there was going to be a fight between North and South Korea, you would expect more pressure on South Korea than on the North, right? And therefore, I would actually argue that if there is a showdown between India and China, then India can afford to act more irrational than China. I know that then I'm, in a sense, arguing for being more irrational than the Chinese is, you know, essentially going to lead the whole world blind. But you you can say that with a veil of ignorance, but we know that Modi is in charge. And I, I don't mean this as a knock on Modi, but whoever the Indian prime minister is, we know that, you know, what Shibani said very wisely is that we have to show our military strength, but not actually escalate. Now, the thing is, they know this. They know that no matter what happens, there won't be a war. Because we have to back down. This They know this. There is simply uh, uh, no way. Now, it's a different matter that, uh, fortunately, uh, China is outside of this thought experiment. They are not quite as belligerent. But thinking aloud from my possibly uh, naive uh, view, it would seem to me that they can basically uh, get away with anything. You know, Amit, in the international system, the strong will eat and the weak is meat. <laughs> um, but... Again, I'm going to say that just because now during this thought experiment, we can't come up with definite reasons for what we can do apart from backing down. Maybe what we need is an extremely crazy prime minister who is willing to signal absolute irrationality. Maybe that is something that our policymakers should consider. <laughs> you know, that that's a thought that struck me the other day, that if Yogi Adityanath was PM, then the Chinese would have to be more wary. But then the problem is, that solves your geopolitical problem. But what about your internal uh, domestic governance problem? Uh, you know, you'll have encounter Raj all over India and not just in uh, UP. But uh, so leaving that aside, that was an amusing thought experiment. And you have you, uh, the, uh, both of you have given me this fascinating uh, trip through history and perspective. And I'll also link all my other episodes on uh, China in the show notes. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and giving me so much of your time. And before I sort of, uh, uh, before we uh, wrap it up, uh, you know what I'm going to ask, isn't it? which is the sort of the staple question of all my uh, sort of um, episodes and whatever subjects I do. Uh, And I'll turn to Shibani first and then Hamsini, which is that if you are to sort of, if I ask you to look at the year 2030, uh, as far as India-China relations are concerned, what's the best case scenario and what's the worst case scenario? Um, 2030 best case scenario is that both sides, um, that the memory of war is strong on either side. And uh, that is why they don't enter into war with each other uh, to avoid the cost that uh, war carries with it. But if the memory of war is strong on both sides, that means there's been a war between now and then. No, I'm seeing from, you know, the history of India and China. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. That memory from the history of India and China carries forward to that time. And it's not a 
a new generation that thinks uh, bombing the hell out of the other is the way to go. And what's the worst case scenario? Worst case scenario is that there's a generation that forgets the cost of going to war. And uh, I would also think, see, one of the things that I wanted to point out earlier about uh, nuclear weapons in the India-China equation is while both sides have nuclear weapons, the, the relationship in that domain has been stable. The use of nuclear weapons in any conflict between India and China has not been mentioned. When you compare that with India and Pakistan, where as soon as there is some sort of conflict, immediately someone somewhere will mention, we'll use nukes. Um, in 2019, there was uh, talks uh, from the Indian uh, Ministry of Defense that, you know, India is willing to review its position of no first use of nuclear weapons uh, if that is required. And that was in context of what was happening between India and Pakistan at the time. Um, but with India and China, that's never been the case. India saw China's acquiring of nuclear weapons as its claim to, you know, being a global power, never felt threatened by it. And China has understood um, India's, uh, you know, a growing nuclear arsenal as a security against Pakistan and that, you know, the, the insecurity within the Indian subcontinent is what is driving that. Yeah, I think your worst case scenario is that uh, we end up in a conflict which is brutal for both sides because of a generation that forgot uh, the memories of war, right? That, that's your... Okay. Hamsini, you are part of a generation which grew up well after the last war. <laughs> what do you remember? Um, Even I am, in fact. <laughs> that's true. I mean, actually, yeah, I would. What are your memories of the narrative around China when you were growing up, Amit, before I answer my question? I, I, I have no memories. Yeah, there were the narratives around Pakistan all the time and they are still pretty much the same. And they, thankfully, the narrative around capitalists has changed uh, a little bit. They're not all evil. But apart from that, you know, I don't remember narratives around the Chinese, but we Indians as a people have always been uh, so xenophobic and racist, frankly, but leaving that aside. Okay. I think, Amit, best case scenario is that the border between India and China is like the border between Russia and China. And what this essentially means is that the border is settled, it's resolved amicably, whatever amicably could mean. I'm not going to get into the nitty gritties of who gave what to whom, but you have a border with border ports, you can have tourism, you can cross into from one side of the Himalayas to the other and walk into Yunnan from Arunachal Pradesh. That would be best case scenario for me. Um, and I, because I think if you resolve this, then a lot of other things may possibly take off and take off well. Worst case scenario would obviously be conflict, but conflict could also lead to the resolution of these borders in some way or the other, right? I think what I would be very afraid of is an India that wants to catch up with China, that wants to posture aggressively, uh, indulges in, you know, building up its arms and overdrawing the Indian economy to sort of signal strength. I'm afraid that India would sort of repeat 
the mistakes of the Soviet Union in that sense. Um, uh, the Soviet Union of the, the 80s, essentially. And I'm, that is what I would be even more scared of. Because it's very easy for us to think in terms of foreign policy and what India should do. But I think it's the work at the background, particularly what's happening with the economy that fundamentally worries me in a short-term 10-year scenario. Yeah, and, and, and the, uh, you know, unsurprisingly, you have packed in a profound thought, uh, which I'll unpack in my uh, uh, own words, which is basically, you know, people often look at narrative and reality as a binary and they will look at a government as a government that can construct a narrative that has nothing to do with reality as if it is a harmless thing. But the point is narratives can shape reality. And if we build this narrative where we are this macho aggressive nation state that takes no shit from others, then that narrative could shape our reality in ways that might lead to your worst case uh, uh, scenario, Hamsini and Shibani, you've both been extremely uh, uh, patient. So thank you for coming on the show and for your time and your insights. Thank you, Amit. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having us, Amit. This is really good. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, you can follow all of us on Twitter. Hamsini is at Hamsini H. Shibani is at Mehtasaurus. That's uh, M-E-H-T-A-S-A-U-R-U-S. And I am at Amit Varma, A-M-I-T-V-A-R-M-A. You can browse past episodes of The Seen and the Unseen at seenunseen.in. Thank you for listening. Did you enjoy this episode of The Scene and the Unseen? If so, would you like to support the production of the show? You can go over to sceneunseen.in slash support and contribute any amount you like to keep this podcast alive and kicking. Thank you.